This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Thank you so much for checking out the audio version of my channel, Ruslan KD, King's Dream Outlier on all platforms. If you, yes, you find this valuable the best way you can reach me, the best way you can give me feedback, the best way you can even hop into a group Zoom call with me is through our King's Dream Patreon community. So consider partnering with us there. The link is in the description of this podcast. Thank you so much for all the love and support. Now enjoy. Bruce Lawn. With Dr. Flowers. Incredible uh, YouTube page, been an oasis for me. Director of Evangelism and Apologetics for Texas Baptist. Much smarter than I am, uh, much more educated. And so we're going to be talking about this idea of what is Calvinism? Is it unbiblical? And a whole bunch of other stuff. So if you're here, give this video a quick thumbs up, if you will. That would be incredible. Make sure you are subscribed. And let's just jump right into it. My uh, backstory with Becoming Reformed, Calvinist, what have you, Dr. Flowers, is about 12, 13 years ago. The Reformed and Restless movement was super popular. It took over the Christian hip-hop space, Christian rap space, with guys like Lecrae and Propaganda, Show Baraka, all being vastly influenced by this thing. And uh, and it was an interesting time. I never went all the way off the deep end and became like a thousand point Calvinist, uh, <laughs> as, as some of my contemporaries had. Some of them have gone on to deconstruct their faith. Some of them went very progressive. Some of them kind of landed where you are where with uh, pro- provisionism, which we're going to get into. So for those who don't know, they're clicking in. They have no idea what Calvinism is. Before we get into why is it unbiblical, more about your YouTube channel. Can you just define what what is Calvinism? And let's get into sure. some of the issues with Calvinism. Yeah, Calvinism is a, a particular soteriological belief within the doctrines of uh, Christianity. In other words, they are Christians. Uh, I believe that that Calvinists are believers. They truly believe in Jesus Christ. I just believe that they interpret certain passages wrongly, as I once did when I was a Calvinist for 10 years. And I don't think I, I lost my salvation when I became a Calvinist at the age of 19, and I was a Calvinist for about 10 years. Uh, Calvinism, uh, just kind of a quick overview, is oftentimes uh, looked at through the, the popular acrostic TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which stands for total depravity, which is the concept and idea that we are born in a condition that's fallen and corpse-like dead, that our our souls, in a sense, are spiritually dead, and therefore we cannot even respond to God's truth, uh, to the gospel presentation, because of the nature we're born in. And so because Adam and Eve fell, we're all born in this fallen, corrupt, sinful nature, that cannot even respond positively, even to the gospel appeal to be reconciled from that fallen condition. And so we, we have to have something uh, to intervene. Uh, and that, that intervention is, is some kind of a regenerative grace, uh, re- regeneration, or some kind of a, uh, an effectual call, depending on what the Calvinist wants to call it. And so that's the T, is the, the, and that's the, 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 the foundation for the entire 
Calvinistic system is that we're born totally disabled uh, without in, any hope of salvation unless God intervenes with a, a miracle, uh, irresistible grace that, that brings us back to life. And that's where the you comes in, the unconditional election. These are the ones that he does this for. He, do, he does this special act of grace on those he is, con, he is unconditionally elected. That means without any conditions, he doesn't foresee their faith. He doesn't know, he doesn't see anything about them in particular that's, that's uh, righteous or good. He doesn't even foresee uh, faith in them. He, he's not taking anything into account about the individual whatsoever before they're ever even born, before they're even created, uh, before creation even begins, according to the Calvinist doctrine, he chooses some people and he passes by the rest. And that's what the U, unconditional election, stands for. And then the L, the limited atonement, means that Jesus, when he came to die, he didn't come to die for the sins of every single man, woman, boy, and girl uh, universally for the entire world. He came to die in particular for uh, his elect for those he's chosen before mm. the foundation of the world. Um, and so that's what the L would stand for. The The I is irresistible grace, which I already referenced. This is the effectual call. This is what changes that corpse-like dead sinner that was born in that condition. He wasn't born like that because of his own choices. He was born like that because of Adam's choice, who mm. we were represented by in the fall. And he he changes their nature to make them into a, 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 a person that can and will certainly respond positively to the gospel appeal. Um, and so that's the I, the irresistible grace, or sometimes it's called effectual calling. And then the P is perseverance of the saints. And what that is, is that that if God's chosen you before the foundation of the world and he's, he's elected you uh, and he's changed you by irresistible grace, then he will, he will persevere you. In other words, he will keep you in the faith through yeah. persevering your faith until the very end and you will certainly be saved. So uh, that's a basic uh, yeah, overview so a great. of the Calvinist system. <laughs> so with that, you use the word, which is the channel, your YouTube channel. Uh, I, I butcher it all the way. Let me see if I get it right. Soterology. Soterology. Soteriology. 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 Yeah. I was so close. Yeah. Which is the doctrine <laughs> of salvation, the doctrine of how people uh, get saved. And so Calvinism, in the broadest scope, leans more towards, I mean, leans more, is a view that God does 150% of the saving, man doesn't have anything to do with the saving, and God just plucks people he wants to save, and that's just how it is. We'll get into the logical conclusion of where that goes if you just kind of go down the, the, the slippery slope of some of that. Um, so that's so, okay. So before we get into the tulip, which I think was a fantastic breakdown, let me give you some of my issues with Calvinism. And when we just go over all those with, with the with the caveat of total depravity, how bad are we? Like, are we just fallen or are we? The word Paul Washer uses is utterly depraved, which is like, come on, like you're like it's like putting something extra on it. I don't like the utterly depraved. Um, you hate God. Everybody hates God. That's their default state is they hate God, right? Uh, yeah, with, the, with, yeah. the, with the caveat of that and the caveat of limited atonement, Jesus only died for the elect. The other three seem fairly reasonable, I, I think. Um, but my issues with Calvinism is, is twofold. It's the the culture of Calvinism. It's it's some of the, the, the conclusions of outside of like, we just have biblical theology and everyone is wrong or a heretic, which again, we'll get into that as well. I'll give you a, a story. My church, I'm a spiritual mutt, theological mutt all over. We've been all over the place. We started out as a young 
I don't know, I guess you could call this like a seeker type of church. Then we swayed super charismatic with the tongues and the whole bit. And then for a season, our uh, associate uh, worship pastor became a Calvinist. And it was like he got saved all over again. And we went hardcore Calvinist where he, I mean, he literally redid Driscoll's doctrines, uh, the doctrine book. And we went through like a 12 week series of all the essential doctrines, had to sign a, a blood covenant. It wasn't a blood covenant, <laughs> had to sign a, an agreement, a church covenant agreement. And I remember sitting with him and I had this conversation and I'm still friends with this guy. Like we're acquaintances. It's all good. Yeah. But I remember being a newlywed, I was maybe 26, 27. Me and my wife were newlyweds. We both come from poverty. We both come just from just I'm an immigrant. Dad wasn't in my life. My my wife's family's been in out of jail. And we discovered financial literacy, biblical financial literacy. And what it just was doing for our marriage, how we were getting out of debt, how we were saving money on a budget, the fact that it, incre- it, it impacted our own marriage and how we were closer in our marriage, how it, in- I mean, everything, sex life, physical, everything was just getting on this really tactical side of handling our finances. And I was sitting here talking to him and I said, Hey, I love the theology and the doctrines of grace. And I think that stuff is great, but I think people need a course. Like it's, we should take people through this FPU course with Dave Ramsey. I think it would be very helpful. It's not just theology and and head knowledge. No, this is really pragmatic, practical stuff. Not to say pragmaticism is always right, but it's really practical stuff. And he, and he looked across to me and he said, we just need to tell people to preach the gospel to themselves. And I said, yeah, gospel, important. But they need to know how to get on a budget. <laughs> they need to know how to manage their money. They need to know how to communicate. They need to know how to use their big boy and big big girl words. They need to know how to have discipline. They need to have a plan for their life. And, his, and the response to everything was just preach the gospel. You're dealing with pornography, just preach the gospel. You're addicted to pills, just preach the gospel. And everything was just preach the gospel. And literally like, Look in the mirror and preach the gospel to yourself. And that was like the magic bullet to everything. And I, and, and, I, and I don't mean to make a caricature out of him and say all Calvinists believe this, but it does seem to slip into this. If we know the right things, then we will instantly do the right things and behave the correct way. Where a lot of times you need that bridge. You need a teacher to come in and say, hey, yeah, our life is not our own. Jesus is on the throne. Our money is not our own. Therefore... Let's make. Let's show you what a budget is. Therefore, let's explain why debt is dumb, according to Proverbs. Therefore, let's help you walk through this process so that you could change your family tree, so that you don't have to keep living in poverty and your kids don't have to live in poverty. And the the FPU stuff radicalized and transformed our marriage mm-hmm. completely. Um, like literally everything. And now, you know, because of that stuff, we got out of debt. We paid out $45,000 of debt in 18 months. That pastor subsequently left the church, went and planted his own church of like 75 people. They're doing great, small church. And it's the same kind of preach the gospel to yourself message every Sunday. And uh, we took hundreds, probably 500 couples through our church, through this FPU class, paid off millions of dollars in debt, saved millions of dollars. And that was the part where for me, I was like, I, I don't e- I, I it's not even the theology I have a problem with. It's the way this impacts Christian living that I have a problem with. It's the way it's the and we could get in and I want to get into Gnosticism in a little bit, but it's the way the culture of it is. It's this very like I have all we have all the answers, everyone else is wrong, and we're just gonna simplify everything to just preach the gospel. I would love to hear your thoughts on that as 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 an ex Calvinist who, you know, was was fairly deep in, in, in it. 
Yeah, I mean, everybody has different reasons that they might question a particular worldview, and and every person is is you know different, and every Calvinist is different. Calvinism is not a monolithic group, as we've said before, and so your experience may be completely different than someone else's experience uh, with regard to uh, the Calvinist that that influenced them or the Calvinistic pastor that influenced them. In fact, there's probably a lot of good Calvinistic pastors that take people through Dave Ramsey's. Uh, training and help them to get out of debt and those kinds of things. And so one has to be careful not to, not to obviously reject the the claims of Calvinism based upon an individual experience that may be a negative. You know, some mm-hmm. people talk about how their Calvinist was abused, the Calvinist of pastor that, that they knew was abusive in some way or, um, you know, was extreme or became hyper in his Calvinism where he rejected the need for evangelism altogether and those mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Or they heard something about Calvinist teaching that all babies go to hell or that God hates babies and, and just really extreme kinds of, uh, you know, versions of Calvinism. And that's, that's the reason that they're rejecting it. Mm-hmm. And, and I have to, and I have to remind them, I say, you know, the reason that we should reject Calvinism is not because of an individual person that you engaged with that might be different than you, but we need to go to the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures say? Do if, if Romans nine and Ephesians one and John six and the, many other proof texts that are often used in these discussions, if they truly do teach Calvinistic theology, then we should accept it, accept it as true because the scriptures are our authority. Um, and, and therefore, we need to go to the text. We need to go to um, the scripture as our authority, not to emotive reasons, not to uh, anecdotal reasons, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, that being said, there, there are things uh, valid with regard to how your theology will drive your methodology. Mm. So oftentimes when you hold to a particular perspective about God and his love, and you believe that love is limited to an elite group of people, then mm. sometimes that can drive the way you apply your theology, uh, the way you do things uh, in, in your, in, you know, in, in whether it's reaching out to your community, how you do your budgeting, uh, how you do missions, how you do apologetics. You know, that's one of the reasons that you have different uh, apologetic methodologies out there is because of different theological beliefs. So your theology does drive your methodology. And so that mm. that's why it's important to understand why you believe what you believe about God and to understand that oftentimes you begin to take on the characteristics individually of what you believe and who you believe God is. Uh, you become what you worship. And so if you worship a God who has a tendency to be um, elitist and and maybe uh, seen as wrathful uh, and seen as as angry and mean and those kinds of things, if that's the kind of God you believe in, then sometimes you can take on those characteristics. Not all the time. I mean, I think of John Piper as one of the, the most notable Calvinists uh, in our world today, and he's one of the most tenderhearted, kind guys I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. And, and, uh, and I know he's big about staying out of debt. And I know he has trainings on things like that as well. And so uh, he would be probably one of the best examples of a good Calvinist that's out there who who is well-balanced. But at the same time, that doesn't change the fact that I disagree with his interpretation of the scriptures with regard to soteriology. Thank you for mentioning um, John Piper. Uh, I remember Mark, Mark Driscoll, not in his methodology and what happened with Mars Hill, but I remember liking some of his more balanced views with um with regard to financial literacy and all that kind of stuff. I guess for me maybe uh, and thank you for not saying for thank you for saying that it, that, that every calvinist isn't in a monolith because I think that's actually very very fair. I guess for me maybe it was because I was around 
a lot of young Calvinists, a lot of Calvinists that were uh, getting saved. And it was this pattern from touring with the Lecrae and the Reach guys, from being around a lot of different guys, because I would stay after the shows and meet everybody. Uh, And I remember in particular doing an event called the Man Up Conference in Atlanta, and it was like 3,500 people there doing something with Lecrae and Francis Chan. And we would hang out afterwards, and I would, and I saw this pattern of just men who knew all the right things, but their lives looked like a complete train wreck. Their finances, their marriages, their education, their career life just looked like a train wreck. And so maybe to your point, I think there's some validity in saying maybe that that isn't indicative of all Calvinists, and it was just limited to my experience. So I think I think that's very fair. So let's talk about why it's not biblical, and to, to you, which are the most egregious parts of it outside of the conclusions which we'll get to the conclusions uh, of the logical conclusions but from a from the tulip i wrestle with the idea of limited atonement and, and utter depravity or total depravity or how yeah. evil is man uh let's talk about right. what the parts to you that make it just unbiblical well even rc sproul who's probably the most well-known calvinist he's gone on to be with the lord more recently but he was a very well-known calvinist he, he helped to influence me uh, in in my becoming a Calvinist in the first in the first place with his book Chosen by God, which is uh, a very easy to read, very short book that um, if if you're looking for a representation of Calvinism that's fair, then that would probably be a good starter, a good primer. And I have no problem recommending that people go read Calvinist for themselves. That's only fair for you to listen to the best scholars from their perspective and have them represent themselves. But I, I would love for people to recognize that you should do the same for us. In other words, if you're going to learn Arminianism, you need to go to a, a leading, good, scholarly Arminian source. If you're going to learn about provisionism, you need to go to a good uh, provisionist scholar and learn from the sources. Um, but really, what what point really led me out of Calvinism theologically was the, the, the T, because R.C. Sproul mentions in his book that the T is kind of the foundational point that all of the other points rest upon, mm. uh, and it is the concept and idea of total inability, that all people are born in a condition where they can't respond positively to God's own appeals to be reconciled from their fallen condition. I don't find that anywhere established in the Bible. Mm. The passages that Calvinist reference will reference things about their sinfulness of man, which we all agree with. People are sinful, and they're, they're in bondage to sin. But the gospel, we believe the gospel is sufficient for those who are in bondage and in sin. And so, in other words, yes, we're sinful. Yes, we're in bondage. Yes, we're at enmity with God. But guess what? He sends a message that sets men free. He mm-hmm. sends uh, the gospel, which is sufficient for a lost person to respond to its appeal. Um, and therefore, we're responsible for what we do with the gospel. God hasn't created us or decreed for us to be born in a condition where we can't respond positively to his own truth. Uh, and that's that's where we really push back on the Calvinistic worldview. And the passages, and it take a while, and this is one of the reasons I started to broadcast with Soteriology 101 on this topic, was because it takes a while to go through all of the different proof texts that Calvinists will often reference to show where we believe they've made their error. Mm, and, okay. and they'll say, for example, you know, no one's righteous, no, not one as if we wouldn't agree with that. Oh, of course, we, we agree. No one is righteous. No, not one. Um, no one seeks after God, they would say. Well, we, would say, we agree. We, no one seeks after God, but that doesn't mean we can't respond to God mm. when he seeks us. Yes. Um, and just things like that, little small things like that, that you have to just point out for a Calvinist because they'll quote verse after verse after verse 
which says how sinful and depraved we are. And they seem to assume that that means, therefore, we can't respond positively to God's provision for us in that condition. Um, and I, I don't find that established anywhere in the Bible. I, I really do believe that God's grace through the gospel is sufficient for lost people. He came to seek and save the lost, and therefore he's going to send a message, i.e. the gospel, that is sufficient for lost people to either accept it or to suppress it. And if they mm. suppress it, that's their fault. It's it's yeah. not a lack of God's provision. It's not because Jesus didn't really die for them. It's not because God, before the foundation of the world, rejected them for some unknown reason. None of those things are ever taught in the Bible. The concept of reprobation isn't even uh, taught anywhere in Scripture. Uh, we all have been created in the image of God, and therefore, if anyone perishes, they will perish not for a lack of atonement, not for a lack of provision, not for a lack of love from their Creator. They will perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved, as mm. Paul put it in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. So that, that's what we're trying to emphasize is just trying to help people to realize that the foundational view of total inability is not a Christian doctrine originally. It wasn't taught within the first 400 years of the Christian church. It's not seen in the first 400 years except within Gnostic uh, backgrounds, the Manichaean backgrounds. The, the concept mm. of total inability is not founded in Christian doctrine, and it's not in the Scripture. That's our that's our argument, of course. Now, Calvinists yeah. would contend with that, but um, we don't see that concept or that idea of total inability, the, the concept that we're born unable to respond positive, positively to the gospel. That doesn't exist in any of the writings of the early church until Augustine in, in, uh, in, in the fifth century. So that that's why we believe that uh, it, it's not uh, correct. We believe that it's an error and it's misleading people to think that we're really not responsible to the gospel because ultimately we're born unable to respond to the gospel unless God's unilaterally picked us before we were born and irresistibly makes us want <laughs> to uh, accept him. And that's just not a biblical concept as far as I can tell. Okay. This is great. Cause, cause, okay. So this is where we get to the, 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 the main issue, which is total depravity or inability and then it segue into Gnosticism. I heard Mark Driscoll put it this way. I heard him say, uh, the problem with Calvinists is they start in Genesis 3 and they gloss over Genesis 1. Genesis 1, we're created in the image of God. We're image bearers of God. We have value. We have worth. We, we, we're, we have a conscience. We have responsibility. We have morality. Uh, we have God's ways written on our, on our conscience. And instead yep. of acknowledging that, and, and, and then the logical conclusion would be, and the ability to repent or the ability to place our faith and respond, respond is probably a better word, respond to, to, to yes. the good news of Jesus, they jump straight to, well, the fall, the original sin of Adam, and then grab the verses from Ephesians 2, you're spiritually dead in your trespasses, Titus 3, right, Romans 3, um, uh, uh, Romans eight, the, the the carnal man is hostile. So the, the, the kind of out of depending on translation, the carnal man hates God, right? They escalated to hate God. Right. So I think what I what I like about Calvinism is it's a high view of God. It's a high view of God's holiness. It's a high view of how uh, magnificent God is, and how much people need a savior. And I think that's accurate. I think to your point where where. Where the error is, is it's an escalation of how sinful man really is. Is he utterly depraved and capable of choosing anything good 
right? Mm-hmm. Or is he, or does he have some ability to choose good? Because Jesus even said, you know, the you who are evil are able to do good things for your kids, right? You are evil. You're not yeah. going to give a serpent. So there, there is some good in us. Can we can we just just navigate that conversation a bit more of that line? And do all Calvinists have yeah. this like utter depravity, Paul Washer, you hate God <laughs> view, or or is that a caricature? Yeah, yeah and a couple of things on that point. Um, I, I don't deny that we ha- are at enmity with God that uh, because of our sin we are separated from God. That yep. is that is a biblical truth. Yes, but just because you're an enemy with someone doesn't mean you can't be reconciled to that someone. Uh, even in the secular world, you know, people who are at enmity with each other who eventually can come to a point of humbling themselves and be reconciled with that other person. So just the, the concept of being at enmity with somebody doesn't prove inability to be reconciled from that person. Okay. Um, like and that. that's, again, that's another one of those things that Calvinists seem to read into the text that, oh, because we're at enmity with God from birth, apparently, on their view, then therefore we can't respond positively to his appeals to be reconciled from that enmity. And that's just not, that's not in the Bible. And so we, we can, we can again, agree with Calvinist on to a certain extent about the sinfulness of man. And the, the other issue I would point out is it's actually us on our view. Ironically, they're, they're accusing us of having a high view of man. Um, but it's actually, it's actually us who are defending the blameworthiness of okay. the sinner. In other words, which is worse? I mean, you, you be the judge of this. You seem pretty objective with regard to this particular debate, but which is worse? A person who rejects a God who first rejected him? A, a person who doesn't <laughs> love a God who doesn't love him? A person who is born in a condition where he can only hate God and only reject him no matter what offer is made to him, no matter what preacher preaches, no matter what Bible he reads, it doesn't matter. If he just is born by nature a hater of God because God created and decreed unchangeably for him to be that way, yeah. is he worse or is this guy over here worse? The person A and person B. Is person B worse? Person B is loved by God. Mm. Person B is provided for by God. Jesus died for person B. Yeah. Jesus sent the message that is sufficient for person B to respond to. And person B still turns his nose up at a loving provision God, and he walks away. Which one is really a worse person? Yeah. Objectively speaking, I think even, yeah, I think even the Calvinist would have to say, this guy is a lot worse. Why? Because he could have done otherwise. He, he, he has a God who loves him, a God who Mm. provided for him, a a savior who died for him. And he turned his nose up to that. Whereas on the Calvinistic view, everybody who ends up in hell is ultimately there because God didn't want them. God didn't really love them. Jesus didn't really die for them. And they're actually turning away a God who created them for destruction. Um, in other words, they're victims in a way. You feel sorry for the reprobates on Calvinism because they couldn't have done otherwise. Um, and they were they were created for that end, to glorify God in their judgment. Um, and, and so when, when Calvinists continually argue that they're the ones who have this really low view of man, I don't know. To me, it seems like they're giving man who end up in hell, they're giving uh, unbelievers a really good excuse for their unbelief. They seem to be, they, they seem to be uh, lifting up man by ultimately saying that man has no true ability to do otherwise and therefore makes them less blameworthy. Um, and this, by the way, is not my argument. Uh, uh, 
uh, Irenaeus and uh, Ignatius and Polycarp and uh, Mar Justin Martyr, the earliest church writers, all made these arguments, the very mm. exact argument. In other words, for a man to truly be blamed, he can't have been created in a way that he could not have done otherwise. Mm. That That's the arguments of the, the first uh, writings that we have in the early church. And who are they arguing against? They're arguing against the Gnostics of their day. Mm. And so th this is there's nothing new under the sun, as they say. These arguments yeah. have been around forever. And so yeah. we just have to continually point out, we're not trying to make men better than they really are. We're trying yeah. to, to maintain that men are blameworthy for the sins that they choose uh, to commit. And just a distinction, when you say total depravity, we're not rejecting original sin. We're not rejecting uh, the fact that man is tainted and sinful and in need of a savior. You, we're, you're saying this is, we're rejecting the notion that man is incapable of being responsible for placing his faith in Jesus. Because a couple of people were asking us, I just want to make sure we make that distinction. I don't think Dr. Right. Flowers is saying we think man is inherently good or what have you. Right. And th th this is often a, it, yeah, it's a, this is a false caricature oftentimes of our view is they say, oh, those, those, those provisionists over there, those Arminians over there, they, they all believe that we're just born innocent and that we are really not sinful at all, and that we, we just deserve salvation, and that we're saving ourselves by our own good righteousness. All of those things are canard. That, that's just false. Um, no, we, we are sinners. We're enemies of God. We are, we are in bondage to sin. Hmm. But that's why the gospel came. That's why yeah. it's such good news, it's, it, that it is sufficient to enable someone who is lost to respond to that appeal. And we can either suppress it in unrighteousness and grow hardened and callous to the point where we can be cut off, or we can we can accept it, humbly humble ourselves and say, yes, God, we throw ourselves at your mercy. Thank you for providing a way of salvation. That is your choice. That's you're responsible for yes. either humbling yourself so as to be saved, or um, or suppressing the truth and unrighteousness and growing hardened to the gospel. So let me ask you this: Having gone through this process, do you have a an empathy, uh, a heart for those that are also going through, which is now very popular to different degrees, this concept of deconstruction, because there's a lot of folks coming, that came out of hyper-Calvinism, five-point Calvinism, that are now deconstructing. I don't like the idea of deconstruction. I like the idea of reconstruct, reconstructing our faith, right? So right. reconstructing this, this concept right here, which is, which is the, you know, the big concept is how good or bad or paradoxical is the state of man on its own. Um, it's, it's a good thing to think through and work through. Do, so do you, what is just your heart towards folks that are going through this modern deconstruction phenomenon on the back of reformed and restless? A lot of folks who are reformed, yeah. restless, or reckless, as I would like to call them. <laughs> what, what is yeah. your heart to, to that community? Now, are you are you talking about those who leave the faith altogether, or no. those in particular who leave uh, just Calvinism? Like I'm talking like about I folks that are that are that that are picking up, going through a process. Which again, because I never went that deep and like fully acknowledged all five points as absolute. I didn't go through this process of which yeah. parts of my faith are reconciled with God and a good, and what parts of my faith are more attached to traditional traditionalism, culturalism, denominationalism that aren't necessarily indicative of the character and the attributes of God. Yeah. I mean, those, those like myself and I, and I, we hear from them quite regularly because of the broadcast. I hear from a lot of people who are going through 
you know, deconstruction from Calvinism or leaving Calvinism behind, uh, you know, having having seen the light, so to speak, uh, you know, using some of their vocabulary about that mm-hmm. um, and understanding that they don't need to accept the more theistic determinism of a Calvinistic worldview in order uh, to have a high view of sovereignty, um, misinterpreting what we've already regarded about human responsibility and total depravity and those kinds of things. And so I get, I get messages quite regularly from, from listeners who are, are kind of leaving behind aspects of their Calvinism that, that aren't helpful or that, that they're finding that are unbiblical. Um, and, and, and I rejoice in that just simply because I do believe they're, they're coming to better understand the character and the nature of God and human responsibility. Mm. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm glad that's happening. And it's not it's not anything new. Uh, history tends to repeat itself. And over the last <laughs> 500, over the last 500 years or so, uh, Calvinism has resurged about four times uh, in the in the mainstream of Western Christianity. And it and it always ends ends up dying back out. Um, and I always, you know, tongue in cheek, you know, jokingly with my Calvinistic friends say, well, I guess God decreed for it to die back out um, all those four <laughs> times. And, and apparently it's it's going to happen again because I think we already see Calvinism starting on the, the downward trajectory. Mm-hmm. Uh, even Phil Johnson, who is a well-known Calvinist among with the Grace to You Ministries, has predicted that Calvinism will end up eating its own is the way he mm. puts it. He says uh, Calvinism, he says, will attract uh, the hyper Calvinist will become uh, more and more predominant among the movement and eventually it'll kill the movement. And, uh, and so that that's kind of the tendency of that kind of system. And again, I would have to ask Phil, why do you think God decreed for a hyper Calvinist to kill Calvinism? If Calvinism is, is supposed to be a tenable, uh, livable and sound theological way of thinking. Um, wow. I, I don't think that it is. And I think that more people, once they become well-versed within the passages of scriptures that we've talked through and the way in which we should understand them um, uh, in, in their proper context, more and more people will begin to to see the light, so to speak, and realize that Calvinism uh, is is not up to par. That's so good. Okay, so let's let's switch gears. This is something I've been wanting to talk. talk I've talked about, and I want to talk to somebody that's smarter and well more versed. Let's talk about this idea <laughs> well, I'll get, of Gnosticism. I'll see if I can get somebody on the phone. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about this idea of Gnosticism and. Uh, you had a video up about Augustine, who's the father of Calvinism. Augustine is who influenced uh, John Calvin and Edwards and Martin Luther, who then you know influenced a lot of you know Charles Spurgeon's and a lot of our guys today. Uh, mm-hmm. You could trace it all back to this gentleman named Augustine, who was a great thinker and a philosopher and all these amazing things. Uh, but w- what people don't know is that he he came from a Gnostic background. And that then impacted some of his views that you said were not there with the majority of Christians prior to Augustine. So can you break down what Gnosticism is briefly and, and how it impacted some of Augustine's views? Because I have a very specific segue that I deal with all the time with people in my community. Uh, and it's, it's extremely frustrating. We talked a bit, of, a bit about it offline. But can you give us just a brief breakdown of what Gnosticism is, how it impacted Augustine, how then that impacted John Calvin and Calvinist in general? Yeah, again, saying what is Gnosticism, it can, can take some time because there's a lot of different kinds of Gnosticism. Manichaean Gnosticism, Manichaeanism was the most predominant uh, Gnostic group that that many people would have heard of. 
And it was, uh, in particular, what Augustine was for 10 years of his life. He was okay. a Manichaean Gnostic. Um, and Manichaeanism is very, very different than Christian theology, but there are some similarities. Um, and there are uh, writings from the Manichaeans where they use many of the same proof texts, like John 6.44 and other texts like that, in order to demonstrate what they believe with regard to total inability. In other words, one of the things they do teach, now they, they have a more of a dualistic view that there's a good God and a bad God, an evil God and, and a good God, and they have a lot of different things that are not, um, not like Christianity at all. But one of the things that's similar to at least Calvinistic Christianity is that they believe that when we're born, we're born in, in a completely evil state and that we are, we're completely incapable of doing anything uh, oh. without a divine influence. Sounds uh, a lot uh, like total uh, depravity. Exactly. And so um, <laughs> the, the argument is, is that this concept of total inability really did not originate within uh, the Bible or early church teachings, but mm -hmm. in a more Gnostic uh, or Manichaean uh, philosophy of, of theistic determinism. Now, that's the argument. But what's interesting is if you even study John Calvin, he even says that the early church writings, um, he, he says they extol the powers of the human will. Um, he says the early church writings, save the exception of Augustine, he said, are, are confused and they're vacillating, they're contradictory, and they extol the powers of the, the free will of man. In other words, John Calvin, he wants to validate himself. I mean, he wants mm. to, his, his doctrines, he wants to make sure people believe them. And oftentimes, especially in that day of the Reformation, you would be reaching back to orthodoxy in order to establish your views as orthodox and as uh, viable. And so he, he quoted from Augustine over 4,000 times in the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, and, and he admits, he says, the early church writers, all the other early church writers prior to Augustine, and even Augustine in his earliest writings, when he first converted out of Manichaeanism into Christianity uh, for the first part of his, his uh, Christian life, he did teach a doctrine of free will like you and I might believe it. Um, but only after uh, many years and then eventually a debate with Pelagius does he begin to swing back, we believe, back into a more deterministic philosophical way of thinking. And he begins to uh, use some of the same arguments that you hear Manichaeans make. Um, and, uh, and, and it's very interesting. I, I recommend people read Ken Wilson um, on this particular subject. He's, he's, he's taken his Oxford a doctoral dissertation and made it into a, a smaller layman book that's that's easier to approach than than the one with seven different languages in it and that's huge. Um, and at our request, in fact, he was so gracious to do this. But at our request, he actually took his doctoral dissertation and broke it down uh, to the basics and put it all into uh, easy to approach, more English, you know, uh, accessible. And it's called um, the Foundations of Augustinian Calvinism, and it, and it really does kind of break down the roots of this and, and really goes through uh, scholar after scholar after scholar who's come to the same conclusion. And that's what's interesting about this is um, this is not, you know, Leighton Flowers, the, you know, anti-Calvinist saying these things. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we've got quotes from from Bavinck, uh, Henry Herman Bavinck, who's a well-known uh, Calvinist, uh, Lorraine but Bettner, who is a well-known historical historian uh, from the Calvinist. Matter of fact, uh, Bettner is the guy who made Tulip, the acrostic Tulip, famous. Mm -hmm. um, we, we've got um, quote after quote after quote from 
Uh, you know, there's there's also the book Why I'm Not an Arminian by two Calvinistic professors uh, from Covenant Theological Seminary, the Rob, Dr. Robert uh, P, Doctors Robert Peterson and Michael Williams, mm-hmm. and they write this. They they write the semi-Pelagians were convinced, and semi-Pelagian is a pejorative term. We wouldn't like that term, but that's what they they call us oftentimes semi-Pelagians. The semi-Pelagians were convinced that Augustine's monergistic emphasis upon salvation by grace alone represented a significant departure from the traditional teaching of the church. Hmm. So notice what they're saying. They're saying that Augustine, um, the the, the accusation from semi-Pelagians is that Augustine took a significant departure from the early church. And they say, quote, and a survey of the thought of the apostolic fathers shows that their argument is valid. In comparison to Augustine's monergistic doctrine of grace, the teachings of the apostolic fathers tended toward a synergistic view of redemption, end quote. In other words, I I could read you about a dozen quotes here from Calvinist sources, not, not Arminian sources or provisionist sources, from actual Calvinistic historians who are intellectually honest enough to say, yeah, really, Augustine is the first one on record to really begin to teach these doctrines. And it's mm. that's just a fact of the matter. And it is a fact of the matter that he was influenced by Stoicism, Neoplatonism, and Manichaean Gnosticism. That, that's mm. just a fact of the matter. That's a part of his testimony. It's, it's on record. It's not a disputable wow. matter. Yep. And so I think many of the scholars who know what they're talking about realize that Augustine really is the first one to systematize and to teach more Calvinistic uh, theology in the church. That's interesting. So here is where the logical conclusion of some of that goes. If he then elevates how evil man is and makes man just, just, just utterly evil, and you're saying this doctrine isn't found in the early church, and he's one of the first ones, which is what, five five hundred years around. This is around the time five hundred AD is around the time uh, Augustine is alive. Correct. Uh, so the Bible's already. We've already had the canon for two hundred years. Augustine is 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 presenting these ideas. We don't see any of the other church fathers who believe them. And if man is super duper utterly sinful, hates God, this whole bit. Well, then the material world, which is what also Gnosticism believes, the material world, the physical world, is also evil, and everything here is evil, and everything here is bad. And so it, you get saved. And God could have just zapped you straight to heaven, but He kind of just leaves you on earth to suffer for a while with all these other filthy humans that He may elect or not elect. This becomes extremely problematic when it, again, goes back to my heart for people is, hey, I want people to live out Matthew 25. I want people to live out the parable of the talents, the taking care of the least of these, having an amazing marriage, a godly marriage, a godly family, honoring God with your time, talent, and treasure. This becomes disconnected and incompatible when the worldview is, People are utterly evil. Humans are utterly evil. The world's all evil. Everyone's evil. Everything's evil. The material's evil. The physical is evil. So then, you know, ah, man, I, 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 should I take that promotion at my job so that I can get my family out of this two-bedroom apartment because we're crammed in here? We, I literally had somebody ask me this at a Bible study. We're crammed into this little itty-bitty place with two bedrooms. We've got four kids. Uh, but is it evil? Is it my flesh to take this promotion? Because I don't know. I mean, God, does God want me to have influence at my job and have a promotion? And I'm like, bro, there's certain things you don't need to pray about. Your family's hurting <laughs> because you're crammed into this freaking small apartment. Take the promotion and honor your family. Family, right and and begin this is seeped into almost every denominational camp 
has this very low view of the material world of the physical world, forgetting that Jesus comes into the material world in material form as a baby. I have a four-week-old, and to think like a four-week-old, she can't do anything. She just lays there, right? She just lays there. We got to move her. We got to, she got cleaner. Jesus, Jesus comes as a human, as a baby, and has to be cared for for a minute before he could do anything. In, in the material physical world, and so many Christians are caught up in this idea of the material physical world, and then it escalates. Shout out to my brother Kevlar, who actually hipped you, hipped me to your content, by the way. Um, that, that I love Kevlar. To, yeah, he's amazing. That escalates to a this persecution complex. Everyone's out to get me. I'm a Christian victim. The world's all bad. It's all evil. What's the point of honoring God with my time, talent, and treasure? What's the point of taking care of my body? What's the and, and then it literally just becomes fatalism. Like, well, what's the point? It's just all going to hell. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense. And I think this is a, a vast heresy that is, I mean, every camp, whether you're Pentecostal, Calvinistic, whatever, has this very low view of the physical material world, has this very low view of the Imago Dei and people, has this very low view of our time, talent, and treasure on this side of eternity. And, uh, and it's very frustrating because I deal with it all the time. So I, I, I want to hear your, your thoughts on some of this. And, yeah. and, 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 and am I seeing the connection from, you know, Calvin to Augustine to Gnosticism? Do, I, do I see that connection? Is, is, is it as connected as I'm making it out to be? Um, what, what are your thoughts, doctor? Yeah, I mean, there, there are some aspects of what you're talking about that I, 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 would, I would definitely see as some connection points. I, I call it worm theology. Where, you know, no matter what is said in the Bible about us um, being created in the image of God and and all the, all the good things that God says about his creation and it being good, that some people will overemphasize uh, the evil of man and the how unworthy and our worthlessness of, of man. Um, and, and there's a balance. There's always a biblical balance between the extremes. Um, you've got the extreme extreme on the one side is just saying we're we're all really good people and nobody's really bad right. and and ba- everybody's basically good. You got that side, which a lot of the world is more in that camp. Yeah, yeah. And then you got the other side, the the worm theology guys that uh, we're, we're absolutely viper and diapers. We're just horrible and nothing good whatsoever. Uh, you know, we're just worthless. All these kinds of things. And and I think that the balance is in the middle of those two things where we, we obviously have worth in Christ and that we are created in his image and we are image bearers of the divine. Therefore, God doesn't make junk. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't want to criticize that which God has created because it's his. Now, we can't also underemphasize the, 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 the impact of sin yes. and corruption in this world. Yes. And, and sometimes we're accused of doing that, but that's usually by people who haven't heard us out and really understood what we're saying because... Mm. Um, I, I like I, I said from the very beginning of this this interview with you, uh, yeah, we're in bondage to sin. We're in enmity with God. We have uh, horrible corruption, and but but the gospel is sufficient. Amen. Um, that, that's the good news. All of the bad news is just as bad on our view as it is on Calvinism. It's just that we believe that the gospel is sufficient for those who are in that condition. Yes. Um, and whereas the Calvinist says the gospel is is not sufficient for the world. That that it has to it ha- really what's sufficient is irresistible grace this effectual regeneration that is only for some people and not for everyone and that's not good news as far as I can tell that didn't seem like very good news it's just it's just hey if if you won the divine lottery so to speak and I know mm. that sounds pejorative and that's a bad way to put it but it's kind of what it boils down to it's like mm-hmm. 
We don't know why God picks some people and not others. He just he picks some people and not others. And if you happen to be one of the blessed ones that got picked, yeah. then he's going to grace you with this miracle of faith to cause you to believe. I, I just don't see this as the tenor of scripture. I, instead, what I see within scripture is the good news is, yes, we're all fallen. We're broken. We're sinful. We're yep. depraved. We've gone our own ways. And and therefore, what is our only hope? Our only hope is to to turn to the Lord so as to be saved. And, yep. and he has provided a way of salvation for every man, woman, boy, and girl that no one perishes for lack of atonement. No one perishes because they're rejected by their God. Anyone and everyone can be saved. And that's what we want to try to highlight. Yeah, and, and and to be fair, guys, go check out Doctor uh, Flowers' videos with uh, on this specific idea of uh, Gnosticism influencing Augustine, and and that's uh, I feel like you did a it's more scholarly or quoting like this. Well, I, what I would really recommend is is type in type in my name and Ken Wilson's name. Ken Wilson okay. is the is the Oxford scholar, and I've had him on the program three times now. Yeah. Um, and so full one hour to two hour interviews with Dr. Ken Wilson, he is, he is the academic behind this. Yeah. And so I, I would listen to those interviews. And, um, and in fact, I, I can even send you the links to those and you can okay. put them in the show notes and yeah, we can do that great. on my page as well. And so that way, anybody who wants to go deeper and, and study this, um, go order his book. I think you get five bucks on Kindle. It's, it's really okay. easy to access. And so, um, go to the go to the sources, the scholarly sources, to learn for okay. yourself. I encourage you to do yeah. that. And to be and and also to be fair, uh, you did have a debate with Dr. James White. I haven't seen it yet, um, so people could check that out as well. Uh, I'm going to watch that after this. And so I've, I've kept up with Dr. James's White ministry for a while, and I still like some of the stuff he 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 says. Sure, um, he has a lot and, of good got a lot of good content out there. He does. He does. And so, okay, so. Before we move on from, from the Gnosticism, I, w- I just want to bounce this last idea off of you and just kind of see, and, and, and then we can get into provisionism. Um, if someone is regenerated, born again, they've, 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 they've repented, they've placed their faith in Jesus, they've gotten a new heart, um, and they're continuing uh, on this relationship, is it is it fair for me to say, pray about your decisions, pray about all these different things, but hey, you have a new heart, you're born again, you don't need to sit and question every single motive of why you want to do something in life. Pray about it, get, seek counsel, but this entire like, should I do this? Should I do that? Should I make more money? Should I, you know, go, go eat better food? Should I take care of my body? Should I go to therapy? Should I, right? You don't have to stop and, and question all of these, I would call common graces on this side of eternity um, that are available to us so that we can, in my opinion, become more sanctified, become more like Jesus, be, you know, more tools. So if I sprain my ankle playing basketball and I, and I ask my friends to pray for it, I'm, I'm, and it does, the healing doesn't come down in two days, I'm going to go to the doctor. I'm not going to go, should I pray to the doctors? Should I go to the doctor? Because I don't know, Jesus tell me, because is the doctor going to be Christian? Is he going to put some voodoo on me and, and, and make my ankle worse? Right No, you just go to the doctor, right? And I, hopefully I'm articulating this right. Cause I think there's a lot of this, like, Oh, I'm walking on eggshells. Cause I don't know what to do. And I feel like, man, if you're created, if you're regenerated, you're born again, you don't have to walk your life on eggshells. You, 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 it's, it's okay to pray and see God, but there's certain things that 
God's for you and God's heart is for you to go get help if you need therapy, to work on your finances if you need to work on your finances, to go to the doctor, to lose weight. Uh, I, yeah, and that's that's the last question on, the, on this whole Gnostic. Well, yeah, I'd just say, you know, what, what Paul said, there's now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and it is for freedom that Christ has set us free, that we have freedom in Christ. And therefore, when you're seeking God's will, and this is whether you're a Calvinist or not, I think this is above and beyond that that particular dispute. But when you're seeking God's will for your life, um, you know, it, it would be great if there was a, a book of the Bible named after each one of us. So I could look up, you know, latent, you know, Leighton 412, you know, should I take this job? Should I not take this job? That would make things a lot easier as far yes. as making decisions. But the way I counsel my own children and the counsel people that I pastor and work with is to say, you know, usually God, you know, will speak through various means, like through the scriptures, obviously. I don't think he's ever going to tell you to do something that contradicts what his word says. Amen. Yes. I think he'll also speak to you through godly counsel. Um, when you know people who are following God uh, and, and they are walking with the Lord, they're often going to give you wise counsel. And so the, the scriptures often teach us to get many counselors around us who are godly, who are God-fearing people, who love the Lord, who, are, uh, who have your best interest in mind, get their counsel. And then, and then thirdly, God's not the author of, of confusion. Um, he's the author of peace. And so mm -hmm. one of the things that I'll often emphasize with, with, um, with people who are seeking God's will on a particular decision is to say, if you're still confused about something, if you still feel, um, you know, like, you know, I, I don't know if I should do this or not. I, I'm really questioning that sometimes that means to wait. You know, sometimes you, you need to wait for the peace that passes understanding because God does, in, at least in my experience, he brings peace about a particular decision in my life when I'm having to decide between, uh, you know, this job or that job or to go this place or that place. And it's yeah. not a decision between good or evil, because obviously that decision has been made through the scriptures, but it's a decision about a, a path that one might take. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to seek the father. I'm going to pray about that. But then I'm also going to look for the peace of God that, that, that he brings when you make decisions mm. uh, that are that are oftentimes so difficult, and that that's when um, it, it, it's a lot less hectic in I think in your your Christian walk when you can walk in peace and recognize that the Spirit is at work around you. He is he is guiding through good counsel. He's guiding through the scriptures, but um, but you're you're more likely to be misled and go the wrong path if if you're not living. Uh, in right relationship, listening to him, reading his word. If, if you're veering off and getting into to sin and to getting in, uh, surrounding yourself with ungodly uh, company, those kinds of things, you're a lot less likely to make the good decisions with it, with regard to your career or your finances and all those things that can really uh, derail you in your Christian walk. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love that. Okay, so let's get into, I'm going to see if I can get this on the screen, guys. Let's get into provisionism. When I looked at it and I first heard about it, and again, shout out to Kevlar, uh, who's awesome. He was the one that kind of introduced me to some of your stuff. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, yeah, seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> like this, this isn't, this is like, uh, this is what more or less majority of us, um, you know, got, got saved into. It doesn't, seem that radical uh of an idea so it's on the screen hopefully you can see no. it and this is more or less your response correct me if i'm wrong to, to the tulip um right. and 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 so can you just walk us through uh sure. what, what what this is and i think i think this is i think this is really helpful for a lot of us that are trying to think through this concept of god's sovereignty human responsibility so on and so forth 
Sure. Yeah, and it is exactly that. Just a response to the acronym TULIP. It's just a simple uh, way to remember what it is that we believe soteriologically from our perspective. Uh, just like the Calvinists have their TULIP, we we have this word provide. And and it's it's just simply, it's intuitive in my, it's, I think that's what you were mentioning. It's just, this is kind of, it just makes sense. <laughs> it's just both, most of us raised in church and we believe these basic uh, tenets. And it's only when Calvinism is introduced to us that we even begin to think that maybe these basic things aren't true. And that is um, first and foremost that we sin um, and that sin separates us from fellowship with God. And so uh, the the sin that we have in our lives, whenever the Bible talks about you're dead in your sins and trespasses, doesn't mean you're literally unable to respond to God. It means you're separated due to rebellion. Like the prodigal son was said that he was lost, but now he's found. He was dead, but now he's alive. Um, that, that, that deadness there is idiomatic for separation from God. So we all sin and that sin separates us from fellowship with God. And, um, it's kind of small on the screen, but there, there are verses beside each one of these, which help to, uh, iterate these, these points that, so you can, you could look at that and, and go into more detail, uh, on your own time. But the second one there, the R stands for responsible. And when I, when I say the word responsible, I I'm taking it for what it actually connotes. Uh, that you're able to respond to God's appeals to be reconciled. And so, yes, you're fallen, but God sends a message to fallen people, calling fallen people to be reconciled from their fallen condition. And we think that that uh, message is actually sufficient to do what it's meant to do. And so uh, we, we think that when God sends a message to lost people, he actually sends a sufficient message to lost people, which gives them the capacity to respond positively or negatively to it. Uh, the O stands for open door, which is more of a visual image of saying anyone and everyone can come. Uh, this is not limited to certain pre-selected people, okay? Anyone can enter by faith. Uh, whosoever will may come to his open arms. The scripture talks about, uh, gives an imagery of God holding out his hands all day long to rebellious and obstinate people, as Romans 10, 21 says. And so you, you got this open door kind of concept of from the provisionist side is saying God's God's doors open to every single person. Um, vicarious atonement is simply the, it, it's God provides a way for anyone to be saved through the blood of Christ. In other words, the atonement is not limited to just the pre-selected ones. Uh, atonement is provisional and it's a vicarious atonement. Um, and a, a good example for atonement would be the Old Testament scriptures where the serpent is lifted in the desert. And uh, this is what Jesus referred to in John chapter three, as, as he, just as the, the serpent was lifted, so I am lifted, Jesus says. Well, the serpent was provided for the whole. Anyone could look to the serpent to be healed from the venom. Well, in the same way, any of us, anybody in the world can look to Christ to be, uh, to be healed uh, from the curse of sin. And so that is a vicarious atonement. It's a provisional atonement. It's, it's provided for all, but it only affects or helps those who actually look to the provision in faith. Uh, illuminating grace, uh, it, it provides a clearly revealed truth so that all can know and respond in faith. Uh, the, the light has appeared to all men, according to scripture. Uh, no one perishes because they weren't able to see or understand the light. Uh, no one perishes because um, they, they were born without the ability to see spiritually or to understand spiritually. Uh, the grace is illuminating, and therefore everyone is able to see and thus respond either by suppressing the truth or by accepting it. Um, you're destroyed for unbelief and resisting the Holy Spirit. So you're not destroyed uh, because of a unilateral choice of God to destroy you 
and to make his glory known through uh, your reprobation, uh, as the Calvinistic system would say. No, you're destroyed um, for your unbelief. Uh, those who perish, perish because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved. They don't perish because God refused them. Uh, and then eternal security. Uh, this is for all true believers. If you truly put your faith in Christ, if you truly trust in him, then your security is found in him. And that is eternal. That is uh, everlasting. You won't you you won't lose that. In other words, it, salvation is not like your keys where you go, ah, where did I put that? Or you out sin God's grace where you just sin so much that God goes, okay, that's it. Too many, too many times. I'm not going to forgive you anymore. Um, no, it, the eternal, the security is eternal. He, he gives you eternal life. And that is for all true believers. So that's, that's good. it. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let me see. How do I want to move this? I don't, I'm just going to move it off screen for now. Hopefully they can still see us. Okay. So I, lo- I love it. I love the fact that you are not uh, downplaying the sovereignty of God, that God's ultimately big picture is still sovereign. The way you described that idea, which I loved, which <laughs> you used the, uh, no, it wasn't you. It was Dr. Frank. Uh, he used the idea of a DVR of a football game. Oh he yeah. Said, I've heard that. You heard that. So uh-huh. if, if there's a football game and you, your friend says, Oh, you got to go see this football game. It was last night. You DVR it. You sit down to watch it. The game has already been decided of what happened in that game, and you could even find out what the you know what the score is. Potentially, you could just Google what the score is, but it doesn't mean that the football players on the field in that moment did not have free will. So I think it's a it's a cool way to kind of reconcile the two. That ultimately God is sovereign, and ultimately God is in, in, on the throne. Um, but it's not a uh, it's it's they, you, there's still responsibility. I love the fact that uh, eternal security is in there for true believers. I'm, I'm there with you on that. My only question regarding this, the idea of destroyed for unbelief and resisting the Holy Spirit. So I like that. However, aren't we also destroyed or judged for our sin and not just our unbelief? Obviously, unbelief and resisting the Holy Spirit is a sin, but doesn't a holy God also have to judge sin this is in the line of uh, ray comfort and you know if you go over the law and, and that kind of things it reveals our sin um how do, how do you how how's that work because i've heard this as well and i agree with it but isn't it also we're all we also a good judge also has to judge sin yes um well because the provision has been made for all um the reason that people perish as paul put it is because they refuse to love the truth so as to be saved and so uh, it's like what Jesus says in John chapter 12. He says, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. Um, the very words that I've spoken to you will be your judge in the final day. Well, what are the okay. very words that Jesus spoke? He spoke the gospel. So what you're ultimately held culpable for is what you do with Christ. Um, because you think about you, you think about if you if you um, put take two random people out of one out of heaven and one out of hell and you just compare them it's very likely you could pull somebody out of heaven who has more immorality in his life Mm -hmm. than the person you pulled out of hell. Mm -hmm. In other words, just because somebody is in heaven doesn't mean that they're, they had a a larger amount of sin or lesser amount of sin than the person uh, that was in hell. Um, There's going to be a lot, a lot of immoral people in heaven because they put their faith in Christ Jesus. And there's going to be a lot of people who lived really moral lives, paid their taxes and did a lot of really good things who are going to end up in hell because they never did place their faith in Christ. So it's not about the level of morality or the amount of sin that anyone did. It's not about Adam's sin. 
certainly. So w- what is what is the deciding factor between those in heaven and hell if it's not their morality? Well, it's whether or not they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ or not. Um, mm. That's that's ultimately what is 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 looked at or what is the determining factor as to whether whether one is in heaven or in hell. And and we believe that you're responsible to put your trust in Christ, whereas the Calvinist would say that God is responsible for causing certain individuals, his elect ones, to to their nature to change so that they will believe in Christ irresistibly. And, uh, and again, that's where we just don't find that established in the Bible. Okay, that's a, that's that's a fair answer. So, uh, okay, before we guys we go into your guys's questions, I have two more questions for you. Romans nine, you have multiple videos on Romans nine. We got a bunch of folks in here that are like, what about what about Romans nine? What about Romans nine? What about Romans nine? How how and and you've done stuff on Romans nine. Mike Winger has done stuff about Romans nine. There's multiple ways that folks have looked at Romans nine. Uh, how do you, how does Romans nine work for you? Which is if you guys don't aren't familiar, it's the whole mm. God hardened Moses' heart and made him an object of wrath, and yeah. So how does how does how do how do you, how do you uh, navigate yeah. that? Yeah, Pharaoh. Excuse me, Pharaoh. Mo, yeah, yeah, not yeah, Moses. Yeah. Pharaoh. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. No worries. Um, well, I, I, my book, The Potter's Promise, has a large section dedicated specifically to Romans nine. Uh, the debate you referenced earlier was on Romans nine. That's that's part of the the book came from the preparation from that debate. Okay. Um, and uh, and so I do recommend for an, an in depth analysis to go through those resources and to actually look at that. Um, and there's a lot of good resources out there. But what some people do when reading Romans nine is they'll see the whole Jacob I loved, Esau I hated yep. verse, and they will they will apply that to an individual being chosen for salvation, Jacob is loved before he does anything good or bad. And therefore God chose him for salvation. And Esau, before he did anything good or bad, he was chosen for damnation. And that's why he was hated. And that's the, the, that's the very low basic view of what Calvinists ultimately take that verse to mean along with the context of the rest of Romans nine. And we don't believe that's what Paul is getting at when he references Jacob and Esau. Instead, mm-hmm. what, what we believe that he's talking about is as quoted from in Genesis um, where Rebecca has two nations in her womb, that Jacob is the nation of Israel and Esau is the na- nation of the Edomites. And they are representative of those two nations. And God is choosing one s- brother to be the seed through which his promise would be fulfilled, not the other one. Proving the fact that God's promise has not failed through Israel because not all of Israel is Israel. So just because you are a descendant of Jacob and a descendant of Abraham even, doesn't make you necessarily a part of the ones God chose to be the seed of the Messiah. And so this is about God's choice of people for a service. He has chosen Mm. the nation of Israel to bring about his purposes and his plan. And this is a really important aspect when it comes to election. Election is always about God choosing nations or individuals for blessing of everyone else, not to the neglect of everyone else. So God doesn't choose Israel to the neglect of all the other nations in the world. He chooses Israel to be a blessing to all the other nations of the world. He doesn't choose the prophets to the neglect of all the other people. He chooses the prophets to be messengers and a blessing to all the other people. He doesn't choose apostles to the neglect of all the other people. He chooses apostles to bring a blessing to all the other people because you know, I have four children. So if I chose my oldest kid, Colson, and I said, Colson, I got a plate of cookies. I want you to take these cookies into the living room to your siblings. Mm-hmm. I want you to be a blessing. Now, some may say, well, that's uh, that's favoritism. That's unfair. Yeah, no, I haven't chosen good. to give him the cookies and only him to the neglect mm-hmm. of my three children. I've said, Colson, you are 
entrusted with bringing the blessing to the the siblings. Now, oh, that's good. if Colson took up if Colson took off up the stairs and tried to keep the cookies for himself, I would intervene and make sure that my promise was fulfilled because I have promised that through you I'm going to bless all my children. And that's exactly what you see with Jonah, for example. Jonah is told he's a, he's an Israelite. He's told go to Nineveh. That's a Gentile nation. He doesn't want to. And God has at his disposal big storms, big fish to convince the will, the free will, mind you, of Jonah to make sure his promise is fulfilled. And that's that's just like a an anecdotal uh, story of Jonah and Nineveh, but it, it really does Israel, represent Israel. Israel is chosen as the nation that God wants to use to bless, to be the mouthpiece for the rest of the world. That's what he says to Abraham, that's that good. through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so yeah. the the if you understand that's what Romans nine is about that God is walk that Paul is walking through this narrative of Jacob and Esau to to understand the promise that God's made to Israel has not failed. It may seem like it because mm -hmm. the Israelites aren't believing, but God is faithful even when the Israelites are unbelieving in even when they're hardened in their rebellion, just like Pharaoh was once hardened. God's going to bring about the Passover. He brought about the Passover by hardening Pharaoh, and he's going to bring about the second Passover by hardening Israel. Um, and he's going to bless the, the world through even their rebellious choices. And so it's not about a, a narrowing down of God's mercy or neglecting some people to the benefit of others. It's about God's plan of redemption through the people that he has chosen. That's good. Okay, so in my life, I, I would view it like this. I would view it in my life. I definitely believe in election over my salvation uh, based on just how God has orchestrated certain details. Uh, I'm an, a refugee from Azerbaijan. Uh, my family applied for asylum in Australia, Israel. We just so happened to end up in America, which was the last place we applied. I grew up in San Diego. In high school, I meet my wife. We, we start dating after high school. We get married. Um, so on and so forth. And now looking back, uh, it definitely feels like God chose me, like uh, like very, very much so. And especially when I have kids, right? Like now that I have a uh, Levi's six, Zoe's four weeks old, it, it it's God interweaving that. But I definitely feel like I had responsibility and choice in the matter at the same time with regards to my spouse, for example. There was a moment where I was talking to this other girl and I was at uh, happened to be at this Christian graduation thing ceremony. And then my wife was supposed to my, my now wife meet me at a Starbucks. And I remember feeling there like I had this cross in the road moment where I could either stay to the commitment of going and hanging out with my wife for the first time at Starbucks or I could stay and talk to this other girl that I was talking to. And in that moment, it just, I remember it so vividly. I remember where I was standing. I chose to go and hang out with my wife. And then that day is when I felt like this was my wife. This is your wife, right? This is, I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or me or whatever. And now 13 years later, uh, we've been together 17 years. That feels like election to me. Is that a, is that a reasonable conclusion of like for yeah. the blessing of others? I'm not trying to make myself uh, you know, the, yeah, the no, Jacob Esau character, I think, right? Like, I think I maybe a better, that. a better, you know, better word might be providence of God. Okay. You know, God's hand of providence where he's guiding uh, you in certain ways. And, and we, we agree with the providence of God. I, I have stories in my life where 
Um, if things would have gone a different direction, I easily could have died or could have been with a different person or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, different job, different place. I mean, all of us have stories like that. And we and we reflect upon the providence of God. Some of it's for good and some of it's for bad. I mean, there's some things that we've chosen to do and we think, well, if I'd have gone a different direction, things would be so much better for me. Um, so when you talk about providence, you're talking about the good and the bad. Um, but um, we, we, when we when we talk about election in particular, the doctrine of election mm -hmm. really has to do with the doctrine of of, of God's choosing and His choice in in and through specifically redemption. for salvation. Correct. And so, okay, okay, okay. The the better the best illustration I know is the one that Jesus gave with regard to um, the the wedding feast. Uh, in Matthew 22, and you're probably familiar with it. Um, any churchgoer has heard it before where the king has a kingdom uh, and his son is getting married and he wants to put on a feast and he sends out invitations to his own people there in his his own country and the walls of his own country. And many of them stone them, the messengers and, you know, throw out the invitations, don't want to have anything to do with it. The king is furious. And so he he brings the messengers back together, the 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 servants, and he says, "I want you to take these messages, these invitations, to the highways and the byways, to the good and the bad alike. Invite whosoever will to come." And and the the, the day of the wedding comes, and people begin to show up from everywhere, the good and the bad alike, the 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 people from outside of the the kingdom, and um and there is a person there who's not dressed in the right wedding clothes, and he has them cast out where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he concludes, many are called, but few are elect, few are yeah. chosen. Um, and what I think that indicates is that there's actually four choices taking place here in this narrative. First, there's the king who has his kingdom. That would represent God's choice of Israel. God did choose the nation of Israel. And that's not a, that's not a salvific choice. Just because you're an Israelite doesn't mean you were necessarily saved. But it, God mm. did choose the nation of Israel to be the mouthpiece or be the, the, the blessings would come through this nation. And so that's the first choice. The second choice is his servants. So he chooses the people who are going to take the invitation first to his own people and then to the Gentiles. Well, this would represent the prophets and the apostles, because what do the prophets and the apostles do? They take their message first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, Gentile the yeah. power of the gospel first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so that's perfectly representative of that. The, the third choice is who the message is going to go to. It goes first to the Jew and then to the, the good and the bad alike. And so it's not based upon the morality of the people, whether they get to come to the wedding or not. It's not based upon their lineage, because remember, he says, go outside the city, go outside of Israel to, to the invitation. And so notice those first three choices. None of them are soteriological. In other words, none of them have to do with individuals being chosen for salvation. Mm. It's God's choice of the nation. It's God's choice of his messengers from that nation and God's choice of who the message would be sent to. None of those have anything to do with individuals being chosen effectually for salvation. And this is where I think the Calvinist messes up because they just have one doctrine of election, basically, and they make election all about God's choice of certain individuals for salvation. And those first three choices have nothing to do about individuals being chosen for salvation. The last choice is what? Who's going to be granted entrance into the wedding banquet? The mm. few who are chosen. The few who are chosen are not chosen based upon their morality. They're not cho chosen based upon their lineage. Because remember, it was the good and the bad alike that were invited from outside of the city. And so people are showing up, but only those who are granted entrance are those who are clothed in the right wedding garments, which represents what? Being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, as we see in mm. Hebrews. So how does one get into the wedding banquet? By responding to the invitation, which is the gospel, in faith clothed in the righteousness of Christ. 
And so the few who are elect are those who are in Christ. That's why it says you're chosen in him. Mm. You're not chosen outside of him. You're chosen in him. So if you're clothed in Christ, then you are a part of the elect insofar as you're connected to the elect one who is Christ. He is the elect one. And so election is about being chosen in Christ. He's the preexistent one. I didn't exist before the foundation of the world. He couldn't have chosen latent flowers. I didn't exist before the foundation of the world. Yeah. Christ did. Christ is the preexistent elect one. And I'm only elect insofar as I'm clothed in him. Oh, that's so good. many are called. Many are called, but few are elect. Who are the elect? Those who put their faith in Christ Jesus. So Eesh. any one of you can be elect by simply wow. believing in Christ. That's good. Okay, now la last question before we jump into some uh, some of these Q and A's. Um, were you elected to be a heretic, Doctor Flowers? Because there is a, there's the accusations that are going to come. There's the accusations of Pelagianism. I saw that just announcing that I was going to have you on the channel. There's some uh, chatter on Twitter. He's just preaching Pelagianism. Uh, what is Pelagianism? Why do why would people elevate you to being a heretic? This seems fairly straightforward even if you know some of the particulars aren't in line with calvinism you don't you don't call calvinist heretics you just say hey this is why they're an error you still see them as brothers and sisters why is the escalation with you to call you a heretic or, or accuse you of being uh, a pelagian pelagianist yeah yeah well even even the word heretic doesn't necessarily mean one is uh, you know not a christian um there you can actually say it's not a damnable heresy. And so you could say somebody is teaching a heretical doctrine, but still is saved by grace. And so there, there are some people who call me a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian who aren't trying to say that I'm not a Christian or that I, I'm, I'm not actually going to heaven. Um, okay. And so uh, just to be clear on that point, now there's others obviously who, who would go that far and are more extreme in their uh, casting me out of the kingdom. Uh, but to your point, I mean, I've, I've said this often, and I think it's a valid point. Either I'm right in defense of God's glory, or God has determined by sovereign means for me to be wrong to the praise of his glory. There's <laughs> really you to be no other option. <laughs> exactly. I mean, if Calvinism's claims, if the true claims of their system are true, God predestines whatsoever comes to pass, that must mean he has predestined latent flowers to to start Soteriology 101 and to teach what I believe. Um, and so that, that seems irrational to me for God to predetermine some of his children to teach false doctrines. That, that doesn't make a lot of sense. That's one of the reasons I think we have to maintain free will to be rational Christians, is that's the only explanation, rational explanation, as far as I can tell, for why Christians have various views and disagreements among each other. Because I can imagine why God would sovereignly and unchangeably decree for some of his children to believe right doctrine and some of them to be, believe wrong doctrine. I think I'm actually responsible for my doctrines and my beliefs. I, I think I have been given uh, the ability to reason, to think, to read, uh, to understand, and to discern. And when I make a mistake in that, that's Leighton's fault. I don't blame it on God. I don't say I, I believe false doctrine because God decreed me to. I, if I believe false doctrine, it's because Leighton made a mistake. And uh, and so that's that's the difference between myself and Calvinists, because if Calvinists are consistent, what they would have to say is that ultimately, if they have a false doctrine, it's because God determined them to have a false doctrine. And if I have a false doctrine, then it must be because God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed for me to have a false doctrine for the praise of his own glory, nonetheless. And that doesn't seem like a tenable or a rational uh, argument in my, my estimation. So um, I, I guess to the, get to the point of Pelagianism, uh, Pelagius was the, the, the monk who debated uh, Augustine back in the day. Mm -hmm. um, they were actually debating over baptism. Um, a lot of people don't recognize that. that the, the point of the debate was over baptism because 
um, Augustine believed in infant baptism and uh, baptismal regeneration of infants. He even made the argument that if um, a, pr a prostitute had a baby on the street and a Christian couple had a baby at the same time, and they were both going to the, the, the temple to, to baptize their babies, and the Christian couple didn't make it in time before the baby died, but the prostitute did, then the, the baby of the prostitute would be saved, but not the baby of the, the Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and he concluded, well, therefore, the only true salvation is through the providence of God, because through the providence of God, he would either ensure through deterministic means which baby to get to the baptismal waters in time before they died. And that's, that's again, that's go read Augustine. He actually makes that argument. And so the, that was really the debate when and Pelagius was was defending against that concept of baptismal regeneration of infants. Um, Pelagius did not hold to a lot of the views that he's being accused of holding to. I'm learning this for the first time, actually, in, the, in these last couple of years, listening to Dr. Lorraine, Bot uh, Lorraine Bonner, um, and not Lorraine, um, Ali, Ali Bonner. I got two, two doctors messed up there. Um, Ali Bonner re recently appeared on uh, the Idol Killers program uh, with Warren McGrew. Uh, and I've, I've gotten her book and begin to read through some of this. And it's really uh, crazy when you begin to study uh, Pelagius's actual teachings and what he's being accused of believing. Uh, very disconnected. Um, and then semi-Pelagianism was uh, you know, uh, actually a term made up by Beza, who was a very high Calvinist who followed John Calvin back in the 1500s. And so um, it, it was a pejorative. Uh, it's kind of like saying you're a semi-heretic. Um, and so uh, because Pelagius <laughs> is known in Christian history to be a heretic. And yeah. so it's almost like saying, well, they, these these Molinists and these Arminians, they're semi-heretics. And so in, as, as a way to dismiss his opponents as a pejorative, he would just call them semi-Pelagians. They don't believe exactly what Pelagius taught but they believe close enough to what Pelagius taught that I'm just going to call them a semi-Pelagian. And even scholars today recognize they'd be more aptly called semi-Augustinian or maybe even pre-Augustinian because they're teaching more similarly to what the church taught prior to Augustine's influence. And so if you if you want to label us with a historical label, I, I would say we're more pre-Augustinian than we are either Augustinian or Pelagian. In our in our doctrines, but most of the time it's it's a boogeyman label. Yep. It's what I mean by boogeyman. It's like it's like what you see in the theological. I mean, in the political world, where somebody will find something that 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 a politician said that sounds like something Hitler said, and they'll play this clip of Hitler, and they'll play the clip of the the, the politician and say, "Look, look, he's like Hitler." Well, it's a boogeyman tactic. It's like yep. if 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 you, I can find something that's similar between you and a known. A heretic or a known bad person, bad character, then I can make you look as bad as possible. And so instead of judging the actual views on their merits and with the biblical authority, they will appear, they will appeal to ancient councils. Uh, what's ironic is the ancient council of Orange, where the doctrines of regarding semi-Pelagianism and Pelagianism and Augustinianism and all the different debates that went on back at the time, it actually condemned what is known as modern day Calvinism as well. Mm. But mm. it's funny how Calvinists will appeal to it as their authority to, to dismiss Pelagians, but they don't recognize that the council also dismisses and, um, and, and anathematizes a double predestination as well, which is something that John Calvin held to. So um, it, it's, it's, it's interesting how sometimes people will cherry pick from history uh, the, the councils that, that they think support their particular worldview. So as to, demonize their opponent. And I say, I, I would rather not do that. I, I don't call Calvinists semi-gnostics. 
I could, I guess, call them semi-Gnostics because they have a doctrine similar to Gnosticism, at least on with regard to total inability. And so I could call them semi-Gnostics if I wanted to practice that same demonizing uh, boogeyman tactic. But I would rather us not do that. I would rather have an exchange of ideas and yeah. concepts and debate the actual views on their biblical merits. Yeah, and, and the funny part is, and, and, and if we follow the logical conclusion of, of Calvinism, and, and, and I don't know how many would uh, ascribe to this or not, the logical conclusion of Calvinism d- goes to a very dark place, which is a good God wills billions and billions and billions and billions of people to spend eternity in hell. And that's a that's a pretty uh, <laughs> like that's a pretty wild concept and conclusion. And it's very difficult to acknowledge how both of those could be true. How could a good God, a good father, the uh, absolute standard of objective morality will billions and billions and billions of people who never have a choice, who never have any responsibility in a matter to spend an eternity in torment? Uh, I think that's the the most logical fallacy, the part that probably most folks would find most offensive with the logical conclusions of Calvinism. I don't know how how much and how many Calvinists own that all the way and would be like, yeah, Romans 9, shut up. You don't get to ask God no questions. He does what he wants. If he wants to send billions of people to, mm-hmm. to hell, that's his prerogative. And it's like, yeah, but that seems incongruent with the idea of what good is. The very nature of what good is seems inconsistent with the idea of eternal torment for billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of people just because a God wanted to. <laughs> like that just that just sounds mm-hmm. bizarre. But again, how like in, in your point, if we're talking consistencies, how how many of them would be fully consistent, convinced in that point of view, and then say, yeah, that's that doesn't seem very consistent with a good loving father. Right. Uh, I don't know if you want to comment on that before we pivot to, to questions. Yeah. I mean, and again, I, I would just say that, you know, Calvinists have different ways of framing things to make their doctrines sound more palatable than maybe what they actually are. And therefore, we can be accused of misrepresenting them because we're not we're not making it as palatable as possible. But and I, I would just say, be careful not to dismiss a doctrine purely based upon the emotive reasons, because, you know, we could have the same thing by the atheists could to do the same thing to us and say, well, uh, you believe that God knew that people would reject him and still That's created them that way. And so you, you could say uh, that they could say, therefore, your your version of God is just as bad or is evil, too. And so if you're going to reject the claims of Calvin, it needs to be based upon the doctrinal merits. Is, is this what God presents himself as? Is this the, the God is revealed through Christ mm. and the God revealed through Christ? I see as a one who's self-sacrificial one who who lays down his life for his enemies, not one who passes by his enemies in order to glorify himself. And so the my, my, my view of God is Christocentric, meaning it's centered on the revelation of Christ, who is the yeah. perfect and final revelation of who God is. And he's one who, who sacrifices himself for the sake of humanity, not one who sacrifices humanity for the sake of his own glory, which I think is the, the basic main tenet of what Calvinism teaches. That's good. That's that's a great answer. Let's let's jump into some quick questions. I know you got to go. Um, this is an interesting question from Stephen. He says, "How would this idea? I think he's. I don't know which idea he's talking about, but how would this idea? How would how would that affect those in unsearched places? What in terms of your view of salvation? The, yeah, un, 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 unreached places. Excuse me, and un, unreached places." Yeah, and I've got an article, and well, also my book, um, God's Provision for All, has several chapters covering what about those who've never heard. Um, and this is what I think Romans 1 and 2 is getting into. Paul is talking about that because 
for, for him, at least, the Gentiles were those people because the Gentiles didn't have the law and the prophets and all the revelation that the Jews had. And so the question is, well, what about the Gentiles? And, and Paul's ultimately explaining God's made himself known. He has made himself known. His attributes, his, his eternal attributes, his divine nature has been seen and known and understood. Uh, and therefore, no one has an excuse for not believing in the creator God. And then he goes on to say not only that, but he's written the law on everyone's heart that they all have a conscience. And so everyone has a, a, a light and a revelation of God to a degree where they can respond to that light and that revelation. Um, and uh, the Bible seems to indicate those who are, are faithful with a little, God will bring more light. And so those who feared the Lord in the Old Testament times, uh, those who, who had a general fear of God through the revelation they were, where they were given, God would bless them. He would bring them more light. He would bring them more revelation. Uh, um, an example of that in the New Testament would be Cornelius. He is a person who knew of the God of Israel, and he feared the God of Israel. Uh, he gave alms. He helped. He did. He, he prayed to the God of Israel, to Yahweh. Um, but he didn't know Jesus. He didn't know the gospel. He didn't have the Holy Spirit residing in him, according to Acts chapter 10. And so what did God do? God sent him a vision. He made sure that this person would hear about Jesus. Why? Because he brought more light, more revelation to someone who was faithful with the little amount of light that they were given. And we believe God still actively does this uh, in our world today. So if somebody's in the middle of a tribe out in the middle of New Guinea, and they don't know anything about the God uh, through Jesus Christ, they don't have a Bible, they don't have a church down the corner like we all do, um, then God is faithful to bring them sufficient amount of light and revelation that they may respond to that. And God's faithful to bring more light, more revelation. Um, he, he's, 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 he's doing this all the time, I'm sure, but there's only glimpses of it that we actually see at times. And we hear testimony of this. I know my brother, who is a missionary in an unreached people group area, talks about how many of them would have dreams and actually come to him because they would find out he was a missionary in, in this, this area. And he, they would come to him and ask him because of this dream that they had. Uh, yeah. and, and miraculous kinds of things like this that, that happen all the time that we're not even aware of, where God's making himself known to this world and it may seem like it's just not fair because somebody's not born in the Bible belt like you were. Yes. Um, so it can't be fair. Well, I think God is fair. I think God yes. is just. I think God is right. Um, and he, he will bring uh, the, the revelation and the light that's necessary for each individual uh, to respond uh, to that light, to that revelation, so that they could learn about who Christ is, so that they may be saved. That's good. And and uh, kind of a follow-up question. This is Javon, a friend of mine. Um, he says, how do we pastorally handle the death of infants in his perspective? S similar question, those maybe un unreached places, babies, infants, uh, mentally incapacitated, uh, so on and so forth. Um, I, I would direct you to an article that I have at Soteriology 101 called um, The Age of Accountability. Uh, it's also in my book, uh, the God's Provision for All. Um, where I go through the biblical uh, passages which have to do with reaching an age of accountability or an age of responsibility. In other words, the scriptures teach that we're going to be held account for our sins. Well, a, a two-year-old who dies tragically in a car accident can't account for his or her behavior. He's a two-year-old. Um, yeah. There's no way they can account for their sinful behaviors. Um, and so we don't believe they're going to be held to account for their sinful behaviors, that God mm -hmm. in his grace will will mercifully pass over their sins. Now, that doesn't mean that the atonement is not necessary for them. The reason he's able to pass over their sins graciously is because of the atonement. But we mm -hmm. believe he does so because they haven't reached 
an age of, uh, of responsibility or accountability. And in that article, I go through details of, of verses that actually talk about this, like when they entered into the promised land, how everybody under the age of 20, when they made that bad decision, was still able to enter. But anybody uh, older than that was was cut out. And there's several other passages which actually uh, indicate that that there's an age in which people aren't able to account for their their right and wrong behavior because they haven't they haven't reached the age of maturity to be able to do that. Oh, that's good. Okay, okay. Here's a, uh, one of our Calvinist friends. It's a good good one. How did God know that people will actually be saved, elect? Uh, actually be saved or like would come to him from all eternity, if not by a free eternal decree. Okay. This, this is the difference between how and that. Um, I could ask him, how does God create something from nothing? And he's going to say, I don't know. I don't know how God creates something from nothing. I just believe that he does. That's what faith is. Faith is believing that something is true, even though we don't know how it's true. I don't know how God knows my choices tomorrow, my free choices tomorrow. I don't know how he knows that, but I believe that he does based upon the biblical revelation. So I don't have to know how God does something to believe that he does it. What I don't want to do is to step into speculation, philosophical speculation and say, well, because God knows what I will do tomorrow, therefore he must be the determiner of what I do tomorrow. Because what if I sin tomorrow? Yeah. God's not the origin of sin. He doesn't even tempt men to sin. And therefore, the first first John two sixteen says, "Pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world." So, if I have pride and lust tomorrow, then just because God knows I'm going to act in pride or I'm going to act in lust tomorrow, doesn't mean that God is the one who determined or caused or decreed me to do that thing. So, you shouldn't. This is called a modal fallacy. It's when you conflate certainty with necessity. Just because Ooh. something is certainly known does not mean He necessitates it. He causes it. And, and I know that's beyond full comprehension. Omniscience is beyond full comprehension, yes. just like his omnipotence is. I don't know how, how he's all powerful. How does he create something or anything? I have no idea, but it's okay to confess mystery on his infinite qualities. What's mm. not okay is to go beyond the pages of scripture and conclude, well, because he knows it, therefore he must be the decreer determiner of it. The Bible doesn't say this. The Bible doesn't say he decrees sin. The Bible actually says just the opposite in Jeremiah 19.5, when they were killing their children and burning them to Melech, God actually says, I did not command it, nor did I decree it, nor did it even enter my mind. So Calvinistic doctrine says God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. Jeremiah 19.5 says, God says, in his own words, God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I did not decree it, nor did it enter my mind. I'm going to go with Bible here. And so there are some things God does not decree. But yet he still can know and he can use his knowledge to bring about his purposes and his plans through the free actions of creatures without being implicated as the cause or the, uh, the, the author or the instigator of the moral evil of his, creature, his, his creation. That's good. I think about my, my my own son, right? Like ultimately, I'm the head of my household. I'm the final authority of what goes on in my household. But I can't control if my son decides to have a temper tantrum and disrespect his mom today, or or God forbid, do something worse. Even though I'm he's in my home and I'm ultimately 
you know, I'm, I, I'm ultimately under my sovereignty, if you will. Uh, I still don't control every single decision my son makes at every waking hour. I, th- I think that's the uh, uh, very flawed metaphor, which you said was way more eloquent. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, it, well it, exactly. But it's a great il- illustration. You have yeah. the physical power to manhandle your child every moment of the day if you wanted mm. to. Yes. The fact that you don't do that, does that make you less powerful? Does that make you mm. less strong? Does that make you less of a father? No, it actually probably makes you a better father because then you're not micromanaging your child, which is unhealthy. Um, So in the same way, God could micromanage every single thing that all of us do. I mean, Mm -hmm. he's providentially capable of doing that. Nobody's saying he's not capable of micromanaging every thought, action, and deed of man. We just don't believe that's how he uses his sovereign power. And just because he doesn't use his sovereign power to control us doesn't mean he doesn't have the power to control us. It just mm-hmm. simply means that in his sovereignty, he has chosen not which choices we'll make, but that we'll be free to make them. And therefore, we're responsible for the choices we make. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes he does intervene. So if I see my son exactly. putting his hand on the stove, <laughs> I could let him do that and hurt himself. Or sometimes I might run up and be like, no. Or sometimes I might, you know, I, yeah. So that's, that's a good one. Okay. How much time do you have, well, Dr. Flowers? I want to. Uh, I'm fine time wise, but I was just going to, I was just going to comment on that to say that we, just because we don't believe in determinism, that God determines everything that comes to pass doesn't mean we don't believe that God determines some things. We we do believe, like you said, God does intervene. Yeah. That's what the writing of scripture is an example of the crucifixion of the, of Christ is an example of that. God does intervene and he does determine some things. Uh, And he's, 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 he's sovereign and he's powerful and he's able to accomplish his purposes. Free will is not a superpower. Uh, our ability to do things doesn't thwart the will and the purposes of God. He always can, he can squish us any moment that he wants to. So we're, we're not saying because we have the freedom of choice that therefore we can thwart the will of God in the sense that we can go against what uh, he wants to accomplish. But we believe that his, his will is that we have our own wills and that we're able to make our own choices. That's great. Uh, uh, Mary Lean asks, can you explain how free will works? Some claim we don't have free will because we have a sinful nature. Pretty straightforward question. I don't know if you have a yeah, and it depends on what you what you mean by free will and how you define free will is obviously where the debate goes because Calvinists, some Calvinists, depending on who you're talking to, will say they believe in free will, um, but they believe in what's called compatibilistic free will, meaning that you're able to do what you want to do, but your wants are ultimately determined by your nature, which is decreed by God. In other words, your nature from birth is as a God hater, depraved and sinful. And therefore you will always choose to reject the gospel. You will never want to accept the gospel unless he changes your nature and determines for your desires to change so that you will want to accept it. And so they would call that free will because you're doing what you want. God's not coercing you to go against Uh, your will. He's actually changing your will. And so there's a difference between forcing somebody to do something they don't want to do versus changing their wants to make them do it. And the example I've used before is if a man walked into a bar and grabs a woman, throws her over his shoulder and carries her out kicking and screaming, all of us go, well, that's obviously against her will. But suppose he had a secret potion that he slips into a drink that causes her to love him as soon as she lays eyes on him Mm. and she walks out willingly. Now, I think all of us would still say that's coercion. That's That's not real love, but at least it's not her fighting and kicking and screaming, she actually wants to go because he's changed her desires. Mm. Well, that's what I think compatibilistic free will. It's a non-free free will is what Ken Wilson calls it, where ultimately God is changing the will of the creature to make them want to worship him. And I, I, I just think that's like making rocks cry out. And the Bible says that if 
people don't choose to worship him. He will make the rocks to cry out. But why would he need to do that if he can just make us cry out like we're rocks? I, I think that what God desires is people who worship him in spirit and in truth. That means that they're truly choosing to worship him by their own will. He doesn't want programmed lovers and programmed worshipers. He wants people who freely choose to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that's what he seeks for. And so um, when, when, he, when she's asking about a sinful nature, one can be sinful and corrupt while still having the ability to confess their sin. Mm. So I, I use for an example, um, Marilyn, um, like a, uh, an alcoholic. An alcoholic is addicted to alcohol. And maybe you or somebody you know has been in that, that horrible uh, situation yep. before where they're a drunkard. They have grown mm -hmm. addicted to alcohol. Does that person still have the capacity to confess their alcoholic nature and their alcoholic addiction mm -hmm. and check themselves into a rehab when it's offered? Of course they do. Yep. doesn't change the fact that they're addicted to alcohol. They're, they're mm -hmm. addicted to alcohol both before they confess that and after they confess that. And the reason they have to go into rehab is because they can't stop drinking on their own. They need help. Yeah. Well, in the same way, we're addicted to sin. We are sinaholics. But that doesn't mean we can't confess that we're sinaholics in light mm -hmm. of the gospel calling That's us good. to rehab, to be yeah. reconciled. And so being a sinner doesn't equal being incapable of confessing your sin. And this is what I was mentioning earlier. Calvinists are really good about just quoting verse after verse after verse about how corrupt and how sinful and how in bondage and how at enmity we are with God, as if that proves, therefore, one cannot confess their bondage, can confess their enmity and be uh, reconciled in light of the gospel appeal. It's good. And this is kind of a similar question. How can God have exhaustive foreknowledge before creation and men be free or have liberation free will? And this is the, this is the part I don't understand. To me, Dr. Flowers, we look at so many other paradoxes and scriptures and are just okay with them, right? Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he's the son of God, but he's God. How does that work? Well, it's a paradox. The Bible is inspired by God. It's, it's, the, it's the word of God. However, God uses man, and there's letters, and you see their personality in scripture, but it's a, how does that work? It's a paradox. And we're so okay with so many of these different paradoxes in scripture, but this one, it's like, well, no, but how? And it's like, well... They can both be true and it not be a contradiction. Am I oversimplifying the answer to this question? Yeah. The, I mean, the, again, the word how there, it, I've already admitted we don't know how God foreknows the future free choices of creatures. That is the mystery of our position. Uh, the mystery, it's not a mystery on Calvinism, by the way. We know how God knows the future free choices, but they're not free. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, the, the way, the, how God knows the future choices you're going to make is because he determined them. He decreed mm -hmm. them. And so the way Calvinists have answered this mystery, which I don't think the Bible gives us an answer to, they've answered this mystery by philosophical determinism, by saying the, the only way God can know the future is if he's determined the future. So he has to author it all. He has to write it all out. And, mm. and then he, he sets it in motion, I guess. And that's how he knows it's going to happen. He's determined it. We don't think that that's the way the, the, the Bible reveals how God has worked. He could do it that way. I mean, we're not saying he's not powerful enough to do it the way Calvinist uh, suggests that he does. We just don't think that that's the way the Bible reveals that he's done it. Um, and so we don't know how God knows the future free choices of creatures, just like we don't know how he created something from nothing. We just believe on faith that he does. And, and we appeal to the mystery of that. Now, there have been philosophical quandaries and answers back. Boethius, back in the sixth century, wrote the mm -hmm. Consolation of Philosophy, trying to answer that very question. Molinists get into it and get very deep philosophically as to how God can know 
libertarianly free choices and how that works. Um, I, I would recommend going studying William Lane Craig's uh, view of Molinism if you want to get more in depth into that, because there are philosophical answers to this from a libertarian's viewpoint philosophically. Um, I'm not a philosopher by trade. I'm a theologian by trade. And so when the Bible's silent, I tend to be silent and I, I tend to say there are mysteries and there are some things like Deuteronomy 29, 29 says uh, the, the revealed things belong to man. The hidden things belong to God. And there's some yeah. things that he's not shown us perfectly. And I, I don't know how he does certain things, but I don't think that there's a, a logical um, impossibility of God who is outside of time. C.S. Lewis gets into this with with how God can both be inside and outside of time. And therefore, we can we can maintain our libertarian freedom of the will. Um, that means our ability to to self-determine. In other words, we're making choices that God has not determined for us to make. Um, it doesn't mean he can't stop us from making a determination, but we are making free determination. So the cause of my choice is me, period. Mm. It's it's not based upon a factor beyond my control. That's ultimately what it boils down to. And yeah. I believe that's a biblical model of, of freedom. Uh, and ironically, even the Westminster Confession, London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, Calvinistic Confessions, seem to indicate uh, on their doctrine of free will that Adam and Eve were created with that ability. And mm -hmm. if Adam and Eve were created with that ability, then there's no logical reason to suggest that we don't maintain that ability uh, even today. Um, and good. so the Calvinists that say it's illogical for men to have libertarian free will are actually contradicting many of their own statements of faith because even their own statements of faith believe that Adam and Eve were created with that. Yeah. Uh, this is a good one. It's probably be one of the last ones. Um, in regards to Ephesians chapter eight, uh, excuse me, chapter two, there's no chapter eight in Ephesians, <laughs> chapter two, verse eight and nine. And this is, you've been saved by grace through faith, not of your own doing. Uh, and then I think verse 10, it says, for you, know, you, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared for you in advance. How would you explain this in a non-Calvinist perspective? That's a good question. Yeah, I mean, the reading of it is not Calvinistic in my estimation. Now, some people read it like a Calvinist to say that faith itself is not of yourself, but is a gift of God in that it was effectually given to some people and not others. Um, but that's not what the verse says. Um, and we have uh, several broadcasts on this that actually the, the gift is salvation as a whole, not faith in particular. Um, and so and even John Calvin's own commentary acknowledges this. And so the, the Greek construct is actually such that this is not of yourself as speaking of the whole clause before it, that that salvation by grace through faith is not of yourself. That 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 gift of salvation is mm -hmm. from God. Um, and so that that even like I said, even. Calvinistic commentators uh, concede that, that that's the construct of the Greek there. But but I always like to point to Calvinists. I always like this. I always like to try to concede their point just to see how it plays itself out, because I could say, OK, let's just pretend that it is faith that's gift. OK, so one are gifts given effectually, because who says that a gift has to be given effectually or irresistibly in order for the giver to get full credit for giving the gift? because I could even say that faith is a gift insofar as my ability to breathe is a gift, but I'm still responsible for whether I use my breath to praise him or to curse him. Mm -hmm. Your ability to rap and to sing, that's a gift from God, but you know full well there are some people who are gifted with the ability to sing who don't use it for the glory of God. So just because God gives us a gift doesn't necessarily mean that we're not, not still responsible for what we do with his gifts. And secondly, I would say, 
where in this verse does it say that it's a gift irresistibly given to some people and withheld from all others? That's because good. this verse certainly doesn't say that. And so in order for it to truly teach Calvinism as the Calvinist uh, entails, then they would the verse would have to say that it's an effectual gift given to some people and withheld from everyone else. Wow. And the verse simply doesn't say that. The verse just simply talks about how salvation, which comes by grace through faith, is a gift of God. And it's yep. not of works. In other words, it's not something you earn by your own merit. Yep. It is something you trust in the merit of Christ. Yep. And trusting in the merit of Christ is not in and of itself a merit that earns your yeah. salvation. Yep. That's a lot of people make that mistake that if yeah. you believe in Jesus, then that's earning your salvation. And that's just a, a canard. Yeah. And that, and it goes, uh, Mike, we talked about this offline, Mike Winger's video on why Calvinism is unbiblical, I think goes right to the heart of that, which is he is, he, the, the argument is, is faith a work or is faith something that we're able to have? Right. And so the Calvinists will say, well, faith, you putting your faith and not all Calvinists, but he quotes a couple things. Your faith, your ability to place faith is a work, and therefore it's not uh, it's not of your own merit. And I think the distinction would be like, no, even though we're flawed by sin, we could still choose to place our faith in God. Um, hopefully right. I'm not misrepresenting Well, the, the, the analogy right? I've used before is like climbing a rope. If, uh -huh. if a rope was attached, an eternally high rope to heaven, and work salvation was represented by climbing that rope, and so somebody might think, well, I can climb the rope to heaven. Well, you and I both know that would be impossible for any person to, to climb a rope to heaven, uh, especially an eternally high rope. And so that would be like work salvation. You can't work your way to heaven. No matter how much you try, you're always going to fail. You're never going to be strong enough to do it. You will always mess up. Right. And, then, and then somebody coming along and saying, well, good news. Good news is if you let go of the rope, if you stop trying through your own righteousness, and you let go of the rope and trust Christ to carry you to heaven, mm. then you will be saved. And the Calvinist going in, going, going, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. Letting go of the rope, that's the same thing as climbing the rope because it's a work you're doing. And it's it's meritorious. Wow. It's earning salvation. And so you can't climb the rope and you can't let go of the rope and trust in Christ because both of those things would be considered a work. Problem is the Bible doesn't set it up that way. The Bible sets it up That's as a either good illustration, Doctor Flowers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or trusting wow. in Christ. Okay, Let, hold on, hold on. I'm trying to write my. So, works-based salvation is I'm climbing my way to heaven, saying I I can't climb my way to heaven. So let go of the rope, and let Jesus do it for you. Is salvation by grace through faith? Correct. The Calvinists would say which is, which is letting, the opposite of work. Yeah. yeah, you letting go of the work is still a work. You letting go of you doing the work is still a work. You are incapable of yep. doing this. Therefore, it's still right. a work. Whereas your position would be like, yes, we're still saved by grace, but I'm me letting go is not a work because the work is pulling myself up to heaven. That is it's a ceasing. really it's, good way. Yeah, it's ceasing work. Yeah. It, it's it's ceasing work. That's what you're doing. That's what the that's what the prodigal son did. He was yeah. working his way in the pigsty. He could have worked his way out of the pigsty and got a job and 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 worked his way up the ladder, so to speak. I mean, he could have kept working like a good Republican would say to do, right? Go get, get your own job, work your way. But what does he do? He gives up work. He stops mm. working. And what does he do? Mm. Begs for a job, begs for mercy. So that's a weak thing to do. It's not a strong thing to do. It's a, surely not meritorious. He doesn't earn what he gets yeah, when he gets to the father. He yeah. doesn't. He certainly doesn't. He certainly doesn't earn getting the golden ring and the fatted calf and the party. He didn't earn any of that stuff. He de he deserves to be to be punished for what he did. And and the father doesn't only not punish him, but he also restores him fully as a son. That is one hundred percent the father's doing, and it's one hundred percent grace. 
just because you have the responsibility to humble yourself and return home doesn't mean that, that in any way merits what God's going to do for those who do so. He doesn't have to. He chooses to do so out of his grace and love. Yeah, that's a that's a that, that's a, yeah, that's a really good way to break that down. Okay, I think we're going to do one question. Um a couple people showed up late. I'm sorry guys, we just, we've been on for almost 2 hours so we don't we're not going to cover every single thing cuz a lot of this stuff. Hey, really anybody who watches my show knows I'll go 3 hours at a time and stop <laughs> that so. Um this is an interesting question. Uh, what does Dr. Flowers think about the American gospel documentary? It seems to me uh, like a, to just call people from other false doctrines into Calvinism. And that was kind of my issue with the documentary as well was it was it was again, yeah. it was a, a very like Paul Washer present presentation of, of what's wrong with American church instead of making it more broad, or at least the solution was, well, Calvin, therefore Calvinism is right. Uh, what, what were your thoughts on the American gospel? Documentary? Yeah, I have a, I have a review out on, on my broadcast too, on that, that documentary as well. I've been wanting to do part two of that, but I haven't got to it. Um, yeah. But I, I do the same thing. I came to the same conclusion that it's, it's kind of this false dilemma set up. It's, it's either the Joel Osteen, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the health, wealth, prosperity movement over here, the bad guys, yep. or it's Calvinists. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it's like, if, if you hold up those two as my options, Calvinists look really, really good oh, <laughs> because yeah. Yeah. these guys are the health, wealth, prosperity guys, or you got the works-based <laughs> salvation. You got the Catholics, the worst works-based yep. salvation Catholics that they put yep. in the video. You got all this, just the, the worst of the worst on this side. And the other side is Calvinism. Um, and, and, and if you have those two options, then yeah, the Calvinists look like the best option, but the problem is, is that's not your only two options. It's not the, what's what you call a false dichotomy or a yep. false dilemma that I have to choose either Joel Osteen or John Piper. Okay. No, you, you can actually choose someone else. You can choose a, a, somebody who doesn't adhere to theistic determinism and Calvinism who also rejects the, the health, wealth, prosperity movement um, and the um, the false teachings of, you know, uh, many of the people that they mention in that in that in that uh, particular documentary. A lot of the documentary I agree with and a lot of it, it, it was well stated. And, and if you weren't aware of Calvinism or aware of the doctrines that the men teach on this side of the, the aisle, then you might not even picked it up. But uh, but those of us who are aware of of Calvinism and aware of the doctrinal stances, you we could see it and kind of yeah. read between the lines uh, throughout the documentary. But um, it was but like for the Paul, most part, was, I agree with a lot of what they said. Yeah, it was like Paul Washer's um, uh, shocking youth message. Like good assessment yeah. of some of the problems with American evangelicalism. I could do a hundred of those messages on a bunch of different topics. Uh, not the right antidote or the solution, in my opinion, which is be a fundamentalist five point Calvinist like Paul Washer. That's the solution. You think that you think that's how we're going to thrive on this side of eternity. Everybody just be like Paul Washer and tuck your shirt in and never listen to music again and tell everybody that they hate God and they're utterly depraved. I don't know if that's really the, the solution. So I think, yeah, I think that's really good. Um, Dr. Flowers, this has been incredible. Any final words? This is, by the way, guys, this is going to get chopped into individual clips. So, uh, you will, and, and some of this will be on his channel as well. Your channel is like an encyclopedia of all of these questions, just answered in depth with slides and all that kind of stuff. So if your question didn't get answered, the odds are he probably has thought about it and answered your question on his channel, which is pinned up right here in the chat. Um, uh, so, you know, Hey guys, 
Go look at his channel. Repeatedly just saying that his depiction is false or this is false, this is false. It's not an argument. It's an opinion. Okay? So if you have an argument, you, you should have been here earlier. You should have presented your argument. You should have put your question in. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, you having an opinion or a position is not the same as having an argument about, about anything he said here. Uh, any final notes, uh, comments, questions before we yeah. get out of here, Dr. Flowers? Well, I'll address that. I mean, one of the biggest critiques I'll have from my Calvinist friends is that, well, he just doesn't represent Calvinist well or he misrepresents us. Mm -hmm. um, it's an accusation of misrepresentation. You just don't understand Calvinism, or you could not have ever been a Calvinist. <laughs> it's impossible because you disagree yeah. with us, those kinds of things. Um, and, and, what I, and I have an article about that too, um, and, uh, and a broadcast about that as well. And that is because, remember, um, Calvinism is not a monolithic group. There are many different kinds of Calvinists. A lot of Calvinists disagree with John Piper on several yeah. points, or MacArthur, or other leading Calvinists. And so I may disagree with your, or I may be representing a form of Calvinism that you don't necessarily adhere to, but it doesn't mean I'm misrepresenting all forms of Calvinism. I've, I've spent my entire adult life studying uh, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, wrote my dissertation on the subject. If, if I misunderstood Calvinism, then I am the daftest of all men, and maybe that's the case. But the truth of the matter is, I know a lot more educated people uh, in academia who have come to the same conclusions that I do. Um, and, and they have studied John Calvin's own teachings. It's not because I've misunderstood Calvinism that I've rejected. It's because I came to understand what Calvinism actually is. Mm -hmm. And sometimes Calvinists are really good at using very palatable ways to present a very difficult doctrine because Calvinists are the first to admit the doctrine of reprobation is a very tough pill to swallow. The doctrine and idea that God chose most of humanity to be damned to hell for reasons beyond their control is a very yeah. difficult pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. Piper talks about weeping for three days when he first was introduced to these doctrines before he finally was willing to swallow that pill. Matt Chandler talks about it being an itchy blanket that eventually became a warm blanket that he embraced. Uh, one of the podcasters <laughs> talked about the, the stages of grief that one must go through when you first become a Calvinist, because there's a grieving process that you have to go through. And yeah. um, I've heard a lot of different uh, uh, R.C. Sproul talks about being drugged, kicking and screaming by the scripture into his Calvinistic uh, beliefs. Um, why is it so hard to swallow Calvinism? Calvin himself called it a dreadful decree. Um, <laughs> it's dreadful. It's difficult. It's hard. Um, but is it biblical? And then that's, that's the point. It, 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 no matter how you paint it, it's going to sound bad when you say it real plainly as to what you're saying. Because think about what your belief is. Your belief is that before people were even born, God destined, faded, if you will. Mm. I don't know. They don't like the word faded, but look it up. That's what it is. Mm. They destined them, faded them to be destroyed for reasons completely beyond their control. They have no control over their fate. They have no control over where they're going to spend eternity. Absolutely no say in the matter mm. whatsoever. And this is, this is, this is the claim of the system of theistic determinism and of Calvin. John Calvin taught this. And so, if I state it real plainly and I, I don't placate it or I don't make it sound with political speech all nice and, and, and comfy for you, um, it doesn't mean I'm misrepresenting Calvinism. I'm just stating it more plainly so people understand what it is so that they know to reject it. And so some, some arguments you don't have to argue against. You just have to make them very clear so people know to reject them intuitively because some doctrines are just intuitively seen to be false and wrong. And I, I think the doctrine of reprobation is one of those doctrines. It's just intuitively wrong. Uh, and unjust. And I think most people, when they see it and understand it, realize it, it's it's worthy to be questioned. It's worthy to be second guessed. And so I, I just, I, I would appeal to your audience to just say, 
Um, go read the sources for yourself. Be good Bereans. Don't take my word for it. I mean, I, I would rather you go to the scriptures, but please listen to the best scholars from both sides. In my experience, again, just my experience, the new Calvinists today, many of them are in kind of their theological Calvinist bubble, and they only hear what their own scholars are telling them about the other side. And so they hear people like Matt Chandler say, well, those Arminians believe that God gets into a DeLorean and travels into the future to foresee who's going to believe, and those are the ones he elects. Literally said that in a, in a message. Um, and, and they paint uh, Arminians and non-Calvinists uh, all in this, this very caricatured way to make us seem like we're dumb, that we're goofy, that we don't have really any in-depth uh, exegetical commentary on the verses that they're always quoting from. And that could not be more false. I used to think that when I was a Calvinist, I used to think that Arminians just, you know, they meant well, they, they, they're good pragmatists. They, they're good at, you know, preaching and loving people and being pastoral, but they're just not very deep exegetically. They're just not really deep thinkers. And it wasn't until I started studying that I began to realize just the opposite is the case. The deepest, most robust thinkers throughout Christian church's history have not been Calvinist in my, mm. in my experience, in my, my studies. They've been non-Calvinist, but they've been buried over the course of human history. Why? And again, this is going to step on some toes, but it's just a fact of the matter. Calvinists tend to be theological bullies. Throughout church history, the Calvinists are the ones who would burn the Anabaptists at the stake and throw them into the river and burn up all their books. And so you look back throughout church theological history, you don't see a lot of the free willers because the free willers are pacifists. Mm -hmm. The free willers are, are like, like um, uh, uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. It just, just totally went out of my brain. Um, but the, who, who would teach, uh, like one of the Anabaptists would teach, um, we should win people over with love and patience, not with fire and, fire and sword, because this is what Jesus did. Jesus was patient. Jesus was loving. Jesus was mm -hmm. kind. So we shouldn't kill our enemies. We shouldn't kill the dissenters, theological dissenters. Mm -hmm. um, and th these, th this is why, why did he believe this? He said, we believe this because we should be patient with people because they, their wills might change. Mm -hmm. God, we, we could convince them. And so we don't want to kill them before we have to give them full opportunity to repent. And mm -hmm. so they, they would argue this from their free will theology. But guess what happened to them under Zwingli? Under Zwingli's, ministry, under Zwingli's rule, they would get killed and their books would be burned up. And so, yeah, looking back through theological history, it looks like overwhelmingly just reformed and Calvinistic and all kinds of stuff. Why? Because Calvinists tended to be the theological bullies throughout the, the years, and they tend to bury uh, all the, the, the scholars from the other side, uh, literally, sometimes, unfortunately. Now, again, don't hear me say that I think people like Piper or others would, would do that today. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that that particular way of thinking often attracts with it very bullyish type of people that come a part of that that systematic and they're the ones oftentimes who lead the charge and uh, and can become theological bullies in silencing their opponents uh, and and I know yeah. what it feels like having started this broadcast <laughs> to be misaligned. Well, you're uh, the elected heretic, right? <laughs> Apparently, uh, what I like about this, and and I, I guess I'll just close with this. What I like about this is is just that distinction you mean you made between how and what. That there's to me there seems a degree of acknowledgement to paradox, more of a degree in acknowledgement to paradox, and more of a degree of saying 
I don't necessarily need to know how to know what everyone and where the Calvinist position is trying to give you a how answer and it creates this certainty and this fundamentalism and having an answer for every single question and your theology fits in this nice little systemic, uh, uh, this, this little puzzle and it all just beautifully fits together. When I don't know anybody that would read the scriptures, even read the scriptures in context, understand the Hebrew and the Greek, that would be like, oh yeah, like I get this very nice puzzle of theology that just all fits beautifully together. And you would just go, listen, we don't, I don't know how, but this is what it is. And there's paradoxes. It just seems like a much more humble approach to some of these lofty questions with allowing there to be a degree of mystery without there being a certainty and in a in a, like an extreme pragmatic pragmaticism to some of this stuff. And guys, this isn't. We're not saying that Calvinists are are bad. We're, we're, I think Doctor Flowers' heart is still brothers in Christ. However, this is where the error is uh, from his studies as a theologian. And I think I think it's I think it's I think it's great. I think it's cool that we have this time and error through media through YouTube to have these conversations. And, um, and 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 help people think through these things, right? Because at the end of the day, I don't think a Calvinist is, is going to hell. I do think that depending on which camp you, you are in, it may skew the way you view people and the way you view the material world, as I stated earlier. Um, but, but there's also a lot of good things, I think, about Calvinism. It gave me a deeper desire to learn the scriptures, a deeper desire to uh, acknowledge the sovereignty, the providence, the glory of God. Uh, a, a deeper understanding for sin and how offensive sin is to God, um, but it but it's also inconsistent in the ways you laid out, and I and I thought it was I thought it was really good. So I'm excited, guys. Check out his channel. Um, it's really good. It's pinned up here. It's pinned up in the title. Um, and and I'm sh- again, if you guys have questions that weren't answered, I'm sure he has a video on it because you crank those things probably. out. Thank yeah, you so much. This so. was this was incredible. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All right. Kingstream Entertainment. Bruce Lawn. Kingstream Entertainment. Bruce Lawn. Holy smokes, you made it through the entire episode. Shout out to you probably means you're rocking with what we're doing and again we ain't got no sponsors on this show and i'm gonna keep it that way but what you can do to keep it sponsor free is consider signing up for our king's dream patreon the link is in the description of this episode best way to get a hold of me best way to hop into a group zoom call and the best way to partner with what we're doing here help us create more stuff just like this thank you for listening peace